Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing that's just feeding your greed. Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it. Hello, simpletons. You're listening to The Minimalist Podcast, where we discuss what it means to live a meaningful life with less. My name is Joshua Fields Milburn. And I'm Ryan Nicodemus. And together, we are The Minimalists. We're here with Malabama. Hey, everybody. TK Coleman is here. What it is. And we have a very special guest in the studio today. Jack Delacho is here. Hey. Thanks for being here. Great to be here. We're talking about sleep today. And um, you are the founder and CEO of Essentia. How long have you been obsessed with sleep? It would be about 20 years ago. Um, Mm. 20 years ago, kind of blindsided by sleep. Um, Got obsessed with trying to figure out what sleep can do. Uh Um, Had people that were ill in the family, going through their own challenges with cancer. And um, I just stumbled upon how important those eight hours are for recovery, for wellness and all that. So it was, a, it, it was a pretty intense moment. It's kind of one of those pivotal moments in your life where you don't really worry about anything to all of a sudden kind of being aware about everything. So, uh, you know, just seeing uh, health specialists, doctors, all kinds of um, experts in, 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 in wellness uh, just made me aware how important sleep was. Yeah. And mm. that was just kind of just scratching the surface. I thought back then, if I had to myself 20 years ago, I thought just being organic was the way to go. I mm. thought it was that simple. Uh-huh. It never, mm. never is. In terms of mattresses, <laughs> you're saying. And in, 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 in your sleep environment. Right. Uh, yeah, right. Okay. Yeah. And we're going to talk about uh, a lot about the sleep environment. This show is a listener-driven show, so I thought we would dive into some questions. By the way, shout out to our patrons in the live stream. If you have questions, every Tuesday at 10 a.m., we do a Patreon live stream for anyone who subscribes to the video version of our podcast. You can drop your questions in the chat. We'll get to some of those later. Any sleep questions or other related questions here? By the way, shout out to our patrons. You keep the podcast 100% advertisement free because, say it with me, y'all, advertisements suck. Yeah, we don't do any ads on the podcast. Let's start with our callers. If you have a, a question or comment for our podcast, you can give us a call, 406-219-7839, or email a voice memo to podcast at theminimalists.com. Let us know that you are a Patreon subscriber, and we will prioritize your message. Our first question today is from Kristen in Nashville, Tennessee. Hi, this is Kristen from Nashville. How can couples navigate sleep issues together without distancing themselves from one another, or offending one another. For example, I've had a long-term relationship before with someone who snored so intensely, I spent many nights sleeping in another room, even when I'd have preferred not to. I, too, use a sound machine to sleep because white noise helps me get a better night's sleep. What are your dating and relationship sleep best practices? Jack, I want to throw this to you in a moment because my wife and I, we have different sleep patterns and she struggled with sleep a lot more than I do. I, I am typically a sleeping savant, except last night I got a titch of food poisoning. So I was up most of the night. And so maybe that's my first pro tip is don't get food poisoning. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that helps you out very much though, uh, Kristen. What I will say is it's fascinating that sometimes 
it does make sense to sleep in a separate room if you have a partner who is loud or rolling around. Or if last night, if I was rolling around and, and disturbing my wife, she's going to get a poor night's sleep because it's constantly being disrupted. I use something called an aura ring to track my sleep. There, It's not a, a sponsor at all, obviously. You, know, we, uh, you could use an Apple Watch or a Fitbit or any of these other products that track your sleep. And I find that to be useful because it tells me about where I need to improve and perhaps what I can do better over a long period of time. However, looking at one day's worth of data, like if I just look at my data from last night, that'd be mm. a bit of a problem. That's that's kind of, you, you, uh, you knocked, na- na- hit the nail right on the head. It's not about your day-to-day results. Um, and when we're working with athletes and all that, we really try to have them look at, 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 very, at the very least only a week's worth of sleep at a mind. Look at it in one week increments and not right. and not daily increments because you're mm. first of all there's um so many different products out there different uh readers and they're not they could be off by 50 percent one given day just because of environment sounds movements everything that may be uh distracting it but mm. if you're looking at your results over a week over a month uh then making improvements on it that that makes a real difference and that's when those devices become useful yeah you know it's funny when i was a kid i remember watching like different TV shows and they were sleeping in separate beds and I didn't I didn't realize it was because like they didn't you know they were censoring like married couples sleeping in the same bed but I always thought that was weird but then I actually started to notice it with like relatives and like different people where I'm like oh wow like that's they've been married for so long and they sleep apart and for for me that's strange but like it's funny because Mariah and I know we don't sleep apart but we have this like the adjustable bed Mm -hmm. and she hates it being adjusted and I love it being adjusted so we have two twin mattresses pushed together. <laughs> so, so you essentially so sleep on separate beds. So we essentially sleep on separate beds. And I'm just wondering in like 10 years, are we going to be in different rooms? No, probably not. Um, <laughs> I had the snoring problem too, but I've done a lot of things to kind of correct that. But uh, yeah, do you get any advice for, for couples? Like how, how do they sleep well together? Well, first of all, that, oddly enough, it's it's a growing thing. People are sleeping separately. Mm. Separate rooms, separate beds. Reminds me back of the Flintstones. Yeah. And, and, right. and, 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 and I was a little shocked to hear that just a couple of years ago, but... Um, some, some people that I, I know very well and well-known people out there are, you know, have their two beds where they're apart and their third bed where they're together. Mm, <laughs> so that seems right. to be a growing thing. Yeah. Uh, but ultimately I, I, I don't think that that's the norm. I don't think that's where people want to take their relationships either. Yeah. Um, and it, it is things to, to, to deal with and, and everyone's got to focus on their space. One of the big solutions is what you were describing that the two independent beds mm. actually do make substantial difference. Yeah. If they're married together, they're, 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 they're it does seem like one bed. So mm-hmm. you, you are able to roll over to one side to the other. So you're getting the benefits, but also because you could, you can adapt to, some of the sleep challenges that every individual has. So the one mm. person who's snoring, snoring can slightly increase the the angle of their uh, of their back, and that will take away some of the pressure in their in their mm. chest and mm. reduce some of the snoring. So there are tactics that you can use to reduce the snoring, uh, but everything comes down to trying to uh, align yourselves. My, my issue at home, I have a personal issue at home, is that. My wife will go to bed three hours before me. So she's ending her sleep cycle three hours before me. Mm. So when I'm kind of still want to get going, you know, and sometimes she'll just turn on a TV or or turn on a radio or, you know, but just like I bother her when I'm typing for the first three hours that she's uh, <laughs> that she's <laughs> yeah. Um But ultimately, uh, I, I, I do think from from 
a few people that I've coached have had this issue. They've got to be a little considerate and, and really look at how this can blend together and be aware of that sleep environment from the sounds to the lights mm. and, 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 mm. and be conscious because it's not just a snoring. It could be a TV set, could be lights, could be a computer that's, uh, that's on. Mm-hmm. Got to, you know, eliminate all of these surrounding distractions and stimulants. Yeah, Jack, absolutely. I'm going to uh, give you five things that I have done with my wife because she also, she actually goes to bed after me. I get tend to get up way before her. So one thing that we've done, and this is not on my list of five things, is we sleep apart half the time. So we have a little guest house, back house. And I was, I'm so grateful I got to sleep in there last night because I didn't keep her up all night Mm -hmm. as I was dealing with the issues that I had. But I tend to be a champion sleeper and I wasn't always that way. And my wife is very similar. She was a very light sleeper and everything disturbed her. And so I would encourage folks to save this episode and go back because I'm going to recommend some things that are mechanical things that are simple tweaks that you can fix. Here are five of them. And then later in the private podcast, I have 12 more things to talk about with, with you, Jack. So the first thing that I did that really helped my sleep is I sleep on a grounding mat. In fact, you're sitting on a grounding mat right now. So is Ryan. So is TK. But sleeping on a grounding mat. The ones we have are from earthing.com. Not a sponsor. It's just uh, we've had Clint Ober on the podcast before. But grounding really helped regulate my sleep. It improved my wife's deep sleep. It gave her more deep sleep. It actually gave me more REM sleep. And so I balanced out the sleep. When Danny started sleeping on one, we have Danny Unknown here. He, uh, he and his fiance, they immediately started having more vivid dreams they noticed. They were grounding and it really helped them out. Uh, the second thing I did is lots of sunlight, especially first thing in the morning. I don't just sit there and in my house and and hide under the fluorescent lights or the LED lights. I go out and I see the sun on my skin and through my eyes and on my face. And I notice that resets my circadian rhythm in a way. Three other things. I sleep with a sleep mask. The particular brand I use is called a Sleep Master. I recommend this to everyone. We'll put a link to the one that I use in the show notes. It's the one that Ryan uses. It's the one that Professor Sean uses and several other people that I know. Mm -hmm. My wife uses this as well. A sleep mask really, really helps with, uh, especially when you're traveling as well, but it helps at home. Every night, at, right before I go to bed, I just put the sleep mask on. It's beautiful. Last thing is a nice pillow for me. Now, of course, a mattress, and we're going to be talking about mattresses later, but everyone is a little bit different here. My wife and I have radically different pillows. I have one from a company called bedgear.com, and she tried it out and hated it. Like, couldn't sleep, cramps in her neck. My wife seems to like to take... Uh, a pillowcase and put about three Chipotle napkins in it. And that, that's about the thickness of pillow she wants. That's about how mine is too. And so we just washed our pillows recently and I got the lumpiest pillow. So I, I need to buy a new pillow actually. But that's the thing. The pillow that works well for me doesn't work well for my wife. It may not work well for you, etc. And I think those those five things, if you change those five things first, that's the, the low-hanging fruit. I have a dozen other things I want to talk about. But Jack, what do you think? Well, first of all, I want to say I'm really happy that you dove into that because I'm not aware how aware you guys were going to dive into sleep, right? So I'm completely impressed with that. And I love it because we really get into deep, deep analysis on on, on what makes people sleep. And part of it involves the, rea- the, the impacts of uh, electric smog, uh, 3G, 4G, 5G. And that's something that when you're generally talking to a general consumer or general public, they're not getting it really. Yeah. Uh, but you're talking about grounding mats, and we see we we we're in a position where 
we work with institutional customers and we work with athletes and we work with our our, our consumer followers who want something different, who are open minded. But because we have that, that such a wide variety, when we come up with a product, everything needs to be evidence based. Mm-hmm. And so we've been analyzing blood work and understanding how cell activities, your cellular blood cell activities changes based on your electrical devices, your phones, your computers, during active downloads, during active phone calls, Mm -hmm. it's actually disrupting your body. Mm -hmm. And these are all parts of how um, your body's not at proper rest. Mm -hmm. Um, So we, 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 we work with quantum energy and really looking on how we stop those uh, situations from happening. So today we we actually have um, a mineral formula that we've put into our our uh, our products as well, which eliminate any of those impacts from happening. So hmm. equivalent to um, what would have been a grounding mat, however, a little bit more up to date because it also impacts um, all the data signals that are everywhere. EMF, uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, here's uh, what I'll say to Kristen. Every choice you make cuts off other possibilities. So, yes, it is true that if you're choosing to sleep in the bed with someone who's disturbing you, you'll probably be disturbed. Now, <laughs> you can help them like I help my wife be less disturbed. She sleeps very soundly now. She is also a champion sleeper, if still a bit of a light sleeper, mm-hmm. but she has improved dramatically. Now, I am a big time cuddler at night. So, um, yeah, he is. <laughs> Ryan knows this because we've been on tour together and uh, he would wake up and I'm just holding on to him. We're, we're in separate beds and somehow I'm holding on to him. I just want to cuddle, Ryan. I know, I know, man. I know, I know. It stems from childhood. <laughs> yeah, they, yeah. The only thing I'll throw in here is uh, with Mariah and I, because like we have different uh, sleep schedules too, but like we have an agreed, like last night we were like, okay, let's get in bed at this time. We're going to read this book. And then we sit and we read a book. We get sleepy. We go to sleep together. That doesn't happen every single night. But I know that when that happens, uh, her and I both get better sleep for sure. Mm. Well, do you and Michelle, you, got, you guys go to bed at the same time? I'm, I'm making a conscious effort to do more of that. Yeah. It used to be the case that I would stay up a little bit later. Mm-hmm. But I'm, I'm just, I just don't want to do the night owl thing anymore. Yeah. It just, it just doesn't feel It doesn't right. work. Yeah. I'll, t- I'll tell you in my 20s, I, you said 20 years ago you started getting into sleep. 20 years ago, I thought that I could like sleep three hours a night and get used to it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I was yeah. specifically like only getting three or four hours of sleep. Like I'm going to train my body to go out for three or four <laughs> hours of sleep. Yeah. So I've been trying to catch up <laughs> on my <Yeah>. sleep <laughs> over the last 20 years that I missed out on. But when we sleep together, like we, 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 we do life together yeah. more, more effectively. Amen. You know? Yeah. Um, well, one thing I'll say is that we all hear, hear people say communication is the lifeblood of relationships, but Sometimes we regard certain things to be too mundane, to be topics for communication. And I think it's easy for sleep to become one of those things. Mm. And I would encourage you to talk about your problems and your priorities as, as, as it pertains to sleep. So if you're a cuddler like Josh and that's a need, it's important to spell that out, right? And it's mm. important to say, hey, here's what I'm not willing to, uh, to live without or here's what I absolutely have to have. Here are my expectations. Here's where you're irritating me when we sleep at night. Mm. You'd be amazed at how many of those things just go unsaid. And when you talk about it, put it all on the table, then the two of you can get a plan together to work on your sleep and make time to do it together or make time to get what you need when you can't do it together. I'm going to get you a cuddle pillow. <laughs> Josh. I already do that. <laughs> it can't stop me from cuddling. Jack, do you want to wrap up Kristen's question here before we yeah, move there, on? There's, I, I think there's a, also needs to be an effort of using your bed for primarily sleep. Oh. What I mean by that is not 
work, not read, not not mm-hmm. not have life. And in fact, one of the things is when you wake up in the morning, don't hang out in bed. Get out of bed. Mm-hmm. If you want to do something, c- crawl up on the floor and, and open your laptop. But the 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 brain the the body has this this memory and it's it it, it it it's easily trained that's why it's impacted by its surrounding by its habits the circadian rhythm it, it, it rhythm is 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 up is 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 something that's memorized by the body as well and if the more activities you're doing in 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 bed when it comes to again uh, uh tv work any any type of brain stimulation um, your body will, your brain will be active when it goes to bed rather than preparing itself for the onset of sleep. The bed is meant for two things, two sleeping things, yes. and sex. So get the <laughs> damn TV out of the bedroom. <laughs> Amen. Mm-hmm. Our next question is from Kelly in Union, Maine. Hi, this is Kelly from Union, Maine. My husband is being tested for sleep apnea and he's wondering if there's anything besides a CPAP machine that would be helpful. He's 64. He's in good health. He's not overweight. He just struggles with sleep and snores a lot. And that's why he's being tested. All right. So Jack, I want to run these by you. So earlier I talked about the five things that most improve my wife's and my sleep. We went through the grounding mat, Lots of sunlight, especially in the morning to reset the circadian rhythm. The Sleep Master Sleep Mask is a total game changer. Uh, the one thing I forgot to mention was the earpiece. We, we, we use, it's called earpiece, P-E-A-C-E. It's uh, earplugs, basically. Mm-hmm. And uh, the brand that I use that works best for me is a brand called Earpiece. Not a sponsor. Advertisements suck. Uh, and so, but I'm telling you that those block out any other noise that might be bothering me, especially crucial if you live in a city or somewhere and you're in an apartment building, there's going to be some other noise somewhere. And then also having a nice pillow. But beyond that, I have a dozen other things that I've done to improve my sleep. One is a firm mattress. I have a bad back. And so a firmer mattress works really well. I, I happen to have one of your mattresses, Jack, which uh, I paid for. It's not, uh, it was like, he didn't give me a mattress to be on the podcast. <laughs> But uh, you make really nice mattresses and you have, uh, you know, you customize it to the needs of someone. Can you talk about maybe how a a firm mattress versus a really cushy mattress makes a a difference for different people? So that's um, the word firm is a little bit of a misconception. That's kind of the dated thing where firm is better. And it really is two things. One is density is really important. Okay. Um, the difference between firm and density is you you want contour. Mm-hmm. You want it to be able to adapt to your curves, to so your spinal curves. and uh, But you need that to be a very dense material so that it's constantly giving you support and it's not breaking down easily over, or, over time. Um, the second thing, whether it's firm or, or soft in, in a general feel, depends on your spinal type. <clears throat> so if your posture is, is, if you have a flatter lower back, you need to have some a, a mattress that you don't sink into as much. Mm-hmm. If you've got a very pronounced lower back arch, you actually need to get deeper into that bed. So conventionally, people are getting into soft beds, which are low density, mm-hmm. um, and because that's what they need for their comfort, but they're not getting the support that they need. But ultimately, more curves you have on your back, you need to get sleep in a bed. And the flatter your back, you need to sleep on a bed. Mm. That initial surface needs to uh, needs to be a contouring and adapt. So the, the, the product that you're sleeping on mm-hmm. is designed for a flat, flatter back, 
but yet you do feel that initial comfort. It's not it's not a hard bed. Mm-hmm. It's, no. it's really it really is adapting to your body, extremely supportive, mm-hmm. and because it's so dense, it'll do that for a really really long yeah. time. <laughs> that, that makes sense because you got a fused spine. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I mean, it would make sense that you need a little bit more of a more density. My my L five and S one are fused together. Okay. And naturally, I broke my back when I was a teen, and it sort of just grew together. And uh, that makes sense. So instead of saying firm, maybe it's more supportive mm-hmm. is the way to think about that. More dense. Well, it, it, well, here's here's the here's the trick. That's where when we get into soft beds, well, sort of at essential, we don't make low density beds. Right. Our our softer beds are higher density than our, uh, and, and that's kind of like people okay. have, have, how do you have high density and not be firm? But density is just a concentration of product. Mm-hmm. Doesn't, doesn't change. So we increase elasticity and increase density. So you have, it's basically a rubber. We, we've mm-hmm. formulated a rubber that adapts and contours your body, but is, is, is quite firm and dense in, 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 in its support. That makes a lot of sense. I'm going to go through this list, Ryan. You tell me if any of these things are applicable to you. So blackout curtains, especially if you live in a city. Yeah. I don't have them in my new house because we live in the middle of nowhere and there just Mm -hmm. aren't, there isn't a bunch of light coming in and I have a sleep mask and it's fine. But when I lived in the city here, blackout curtains, total game changer. So if I can interrupt you, just sorry about that, but but, but, see, you're being selfish with the sleep mask. Blackout curtains takes care of you and your wife. (laughs) (laughs) Right, exactly, exactly. (laughs) So my wife uses the same same sleep mask (laughs) and we have no curtains because we walk on the peeping toms. (laughs) Dude, we lived in a a loft in Hollywood, which now as I'm saying, that sounds so pretentious, man. But anyway, um, so much light. If you'd been there, you'd know it's not pretentious. Right. (laughs) (laughs) But like it was so much light that we had to do the sleep mask and there was no chance of like doing like blackout things. But I'll tell you, like just leaving that apartment, uh, my sleep in- increased. My wife also uses a white noise machine at night, which doesn't really help me. But for her, the one she uses, I wrote it down here, Marpac Dome Classic White Noise Machine. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. But it has an actual fan in it. So it's not digital. It's, it's an analog white noise machine. And that, for whatever reason, it lulls her to sleep and she leaves mm-hmm. it on all mm-hmm. night. And uh, it works really, really well for her, especially in conjunction with the earplugs that she has. Dude, we, we get the air filters running all the time. That yeah. definitely helps me go to sleep. It's like if it's not on, I'm like something's wrong. Yeah, something's yeah. off, right? Right. right. And for me, it, it doesn't. It doesn't really matter. But for her, it makes a big difference. And so that's another way to support her is finding out what helps her sleep better, and that's going to also help me sleep better yep. as well. Really quickly, Jack, would you say there's a big difference between like a digital white noise machine, like a digital app that gives white noise, versus the machine Josh describes? I, I mean, as far as uh, to your mind, there there wouldn't be a there wouldn't be a difference. Mm-hmm. But however, you're introducing. Again, more digital, more electronics. Uh, but they're, they're, to the brain, it's whatever works, works. So whether, some people, it's music. It doesn't mm. have to be white noise. Mm-hmm. Some people are actually just appreciate having music. And these are all stimulants. And we focus so much on that in, in, in what we study, on what makes you um, uh, sleep well, what keeps you. Because here, what we're trying to do is keep people in deep sleep and REM sleep longer. That's mm-hmm. that's a, that's a secret. Whether you're sleeping five hours a night or eight hours a night, if you're getting your two and a half, three hours of deep and REM sleep, you're you'll be great either way. Bingo. A few more things. I know Professor Sean is going to uh, get me ding me on time, so I'm going to try and get through as many of these as possible here. No Wi-Fi at night. We turn the Wi-Fi router off, or now we don't even have internet at home because uh, my my wife she found out she had some crazy reaction. We slept next to a Wi-Fi router one night at, at her parents' house. 
went in Minnesota and she couldn't sleep all night and then realized like she was right next to a Wi-Fi router, turned it off the next night, no problem. And from then on has realized that even if you have a Wi-Fi router in your house, it, it, turn that off at night. It's harder if you live in an apartment building, your neighbor could have one next to your head. But having that Wi-Fi off really helps her. It makes less of a difference to me, but I know with her, it's, uh, it is a total game changer. Uh, blue light, again, doesn't make mm. a huge difference to me, but blue light before bed, last two hours before bed. My wife even wears those blue blocking glasses at night yeah. in case we have any sort of you know, blue light coming in from a glowing screen or from the overhead LEDs or incandescent lights, which we're going to argue about later, Alabama. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and so removing that blue light helps your circadian rhythm, helps you go back to sleep. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and, and those glasses are fantastic. They have daytime blocking glasses and then they have the, uh, the, the darker pre-sleep ones. So if you look at uh, brands that are really getting deep into that, they'll have two versions of uh, a light block glasses. So for, for work and, and just eliminate that artificial life throughout the day, which kind of, which, which helps at night, but they have some that are really make it that much more difficult. In fact, to, to, work, watch TV, and you and you can. You can see the screen and all that. But, I mean, that onset of sleep starts to kick in and you you gladly shut things down and go to sleep. So I, I think that those are fantastic to get, get to wearing those glasses two hours before. Um, or I, just I, avoiding the light altogether if you can. If you can, but that's that, that's that's tougher in today's world, right? And, and and But if you get those glasses on, you're kind of conditioning yourself and, and, and forcing yourself down that path. Mm-hmm. Uh, what we've seen with with a lot of athletes that we've worked with, no one wants to shut off their Wi-Fi. No one wants to really go down that path of, of giving up all of their toys and all of their communications. And that's where we, we really uh, uh, turned to the quantum energy. And, and that made a huge difference on eliminating the impacts and the stimulants from Wi-Fi. The EMF blocking that you put into your mattresses. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Let, let's go through a few more things here real quick because what I found is that subtraction is greater than addition. So yeah. by adding all these gadgets like earplugs and face masks and blue blocking glasses. We don't need all of these accoutrements. Quite often, we can remove certain things that are disturbing our sleep. And so the next few things I have on the list here, we have no alcohol, no coffee afternoon or no coffee at all. Uh, My wife just doesn't drink caffeine anymore because it disturbs her sleep. Even if she drinks it at 10 a.m., she notices it later that night. She's more sensitive. She metabolizes it really slowly. I metabolize it quickly. So I can have coffee a few hours before bed. It's not a problem for me, but for her, it totally wrecks her. No alcohol. She's removed alcohol from her life almost 100%. That's tremendously helped. Also, no THC. So that tends to wreck her deep sleep. And so just finding out, you know, what works for you, what doesn't work, that's removing these things Mm -hmm. that are disturbing sleep. Also, eating before bed is a Mm no-no in our household because it disturbs your sleep. So if you eat a meal within three hours of going to bed, you end up tossing and turning. Absolutely. Eating late is a a big problem. Yeah. And then uh, one thing I do do before bed is I'll have a, a spoon of honey, often Manuka honey right before bed. The carbohydrates tend to, for whatever reason, stimulate my deep sleep mm-hmm. in a way, not a full meal, but just a one teaspoon of, of honey. That seems to, to help out a lot. And then uh, if I'm struggling ever in the middle of the night, I tend to wake up pretty early in the mornings if I want to get more sleep. There's an app that I'll turn on. It's called Indel, E-N-D-E-L. There are other ones out there as well, Brain FM. Uh, the Aura app actually has different sleep. And what it is, is it's um, 
It's listening to soothing music that soothes you back to sleep. Mm-hmm. Any feedback on any of those, Jai? Well, the the whole thing is uh, de- depending on being at rest or being in deep sleep. So once you're awake in the morning and, and you're just resting, you're not necessarily getting that uh, the recovery that you're looking for, the cellular recovery. That's only happening in the, your deep sleep cycles. Right. Uh, so that that's that's more about eliminating you know some of that uh, uh, fatigue that you want to have. But again all through REM and, and deep sleep is where that fatigue is, is is primarily eliminated. So the morning stuff, I haven't seen any evidence of um, being rested once you're awake, having real impact on on, on the body in your life, but uh, I haven't had that much studies on morning apps. Mm. Uh, everything before sleep, and actually all of daytime, uh, eliminating caffeine, el- el- eliminating any foods consumption uh, in those last three hours are, are critical. Eliminating light, all these are, are, are all the stimulants that, uh, that have to. One thing you do need to add, which people do forget, you need to add training. You need to work out mm-hmm. because um, during the daytime, you need, to be, um, you need to be working out. You need to be working your muscles because the body recognizes when it's when it's training and when it's at rest. Yes. And if if your if your 24 hours is pretty identical sitting mm-hmm. at a desk or laying in bed, uh the body has a harder time differentiating the two. Can I circle this back to the sleep apnea thing? Yeah. So the CPAP, this is something that I've been avoiding because I feel like I need a CPAP. I have I do all these things and my sleep does get better, but I still can improve it. Is there is there any substitution for a CPAP if someone has sleep apnea? Well, I'll, I'll tell you one simple trick. Okay. And it it won't work for everyone, but I'll tell you if it works, oh, it's, I love it's this amazing. Is so clickbait. This is great. <laughs> the one simple trick to avoid the CPAP machine. Yes, Jack, we are all ears, man. <laughs> so if, if if you can incline your bed at a slight slope, okay. Uh simply putting some three inch blocks at the headboard. Okay. And and sleep at a slight angle. Just with your head up, your with back your head up. up. Okay. Yeah. So you don't need to have an adjustable bed. Okay. This is really simple, easy, couple of two by fours, trim right. them up and, and just get that angle going. And that angle again is similar to what an adjustable bed does. Yeah. But we technically all should be sleeping at a slight angle. Interesting. So if you have the sleep apnea, that that's something that is is typically closing up your your throat, that slight angle will help out. Uh, may not work for everyone, but if it does, that's really easy. <laughs> it's something to try first before. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Okay, cool. Josh, I also have some, uh, I mean, Ryan, I also have some crystals I can sell you. You just put them under your pillow. <laughs> right Did you have no idea? In the, every morning, I like roll over and like I go to hug and kiss Mariah before I get out of bed because I typically get out of bed before her and I'll put my arm underneath her pillow and literally like I'm knocking crystals all <laughs> over the floor. <laughs> I'm like, why are these crystals everywhere? (laughs) The the last thing I'll say for Kelly's question, because I know we are way, way over, but uh, is what Ryan said earlier. I try some of these things, but when we're not trying them with discipline, what often happens is, oh yeah, you know what? I didn't drink for one day and it didn't didn't solve all my sleep problems. I guess I'll go back to drinking. Or, oh, you know what? I I gave up weed for three days. I guess I didn't fix everything about my sleep deficit. Mm -hmm. And I guess I'll go back to it. I'll go go back to these habits that are impairing my sleep. But Mm -hmm. if you find that you do go three to six months without these things, all of a sudden the sleep does begin and maybe you won't need the the CPAP machine at all. But it's it's probably not going to happen overnight. In the words of Mr. Miyagi, there is no try, only do. <laughs> <laughs> Olivia has a question for us from Ithaca, New York. Hello, this is Olivia in Ithaca, New York. 
I've recently been looking for ways to kind of rewild myself to become more flexible um, and adaptable. And as part of that, I'd really like to train myself to be able to sleep at least reasonably well um, in a, a wider range of environments. So for example, to go camping without worrying about waking up with a headache because I didn't have my buckwheat pillow or my fluffy mattress topper with me. And I'm wondering what are steps that I can take to get more comfortable without all my props and to sleep well outside of my own bed, maybe even down to the floor. Olivia, I love this question because the essence of it is about happiness. Because Mm -hmm. psychological flexibility, what Alan Watts would call being wiggly, that makes us happier, being more flexible, being less rigid. Mm. Now, I tend to be a relatively rigid person. If you can't tell, Ryan is the flexible one of the duo here. (laughs) And then TK is somewhere in the middle. Actually, I don't know what TK is. He's sort of just this metaphysical anomaly. (laughs) Uh, He's a bit of a spirit who floats over and haunts us uh, with his uh, philosophies. Anyway, we uh, what I noticed here in her question is what she's saying is, how do I be happier through being more flexible. And it's true, you travel quite a bit, Jack, especially now, you're post-pandemic and you're getting back on the road and you can't have the perfect mattress with you every night. You can't have all the perfect accoutrements and maybe there is going to be Wi-Fi next door. How do you deal with that flexibility? It's an interesting, and I'll go to a pre-COVID situation. So uh, I was dealing with uh, pro hockey players and the oddest thing was presented to me where one player said, well, I don't want to sleep well at home if it's different than the sleep I get on the road. I want to sleep the same way all the time. Oh. Uh, that it was a crazy idea, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a crazy idea because we ended up putting wearables on them and, 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 and understand that um, sleeping well 60, 70, 80% of the time is better than not sleeping well at all. Right. Uh, oh, <laughs> uh, so so that's the, the thing. The, re- the reality is you... You know, you can't sleep well and adapt to every situation. I, uh, from what we what we've noted is the better you're sleeping at home, uh, the less the bad sleep will impact you. Mm-hmm. So, in fact, you can go camping, and and if that's not your new permanent lifestyle, uh, you will actually sleep well the onset of those first few days, and you'll probably be building a bad sleep habit if you mm. keep camping. So for example, mm. if you're camping for two weeks, you'll probably sleep all well the first couple of days. And then after that, it's just downhill from there mm. because your body's able to uh, rely on the, on, on the memory of sleeping well and follow the same rhythm and the same timing, uh, but eventually will, uh, will break its habit. Same mm. with food, same with everything. Your body has this natural memory and you can get away from doing everything perfect for a couple of days, but then it develops that new habit, which you won't be happy with. Yeah. TK, I think about controlling the controllables. So when we're on the road, I can't pick the bed that I'm going to be sleeping in necessarily, right? We're going to stay at a hotel or it used to be, Ryan, we would stay at listeners' houses or on their couches or sleep on their floors. I will never forget Miniachi's floor. In Toronto? (laughs) In Toronto. Our publicist, she like totally like put us up there was like an antique love seat and then the hardwood floor and Josh and I were just like trading off and on 
I don't know which was worse. <laughs> I know. I'm like, it's my turn for the love seat. <laughs> Have it, right. please. I'm like, wait, it was about four, four feet long. And so you're like, oh, <laughs> like, oh I'm six on it. two trying to like cram onto this <laughs> tiny little couch. But what I did was a control the controllable. So I brought my sleep mask with me. I brought my earpiece earplugs with me. There was a time, remember there was one tour where I was having really bad back problems. I brought a pillow with me mm-hmm. separately just because I knew my pillow would help me sleep. Now, that made me a little less flexible but getting a good night of sleep makes me way more flexible through my waking hours. Mm. Yeah, you know, when I think about what you said about flexibility and, and bringing it together with this idea of focusing on what you can control, flexibility comes from the experience of being stretched, not from your philosophy of flexibility. Ooh. So if you want to become flexible, you have Tweet to that. put yourself in situations where you are stretched outside of your comfort zones. And sometimes while you're being stretched, you might have a good attitude. Sometimes you might have a bad attitude. Sometimes you might say this is working. Sometimes you might say this is not working. But it's the experience of being stretched that produces the flexibility, not all of the different thoughts and judgments and opinions that are going on up here. And what I would say to this question is, if you want to be flexible in these different situations, I would say consistently choose to add that variety to your life so that you have the opportunity to practice the flexibility that you want to have. Mm. So I would say, take a camping trip every three months or whatever it may be, right? Um, If you want to sleep in this kind of environment, like at a family friend's house, schedule to sleep at a family friend's house every few months. Build a consistent regimen of practicing the kind of flexibility that you want to have, and then you'll get it. But you won't get it by saying, I got to make myself more flexible, or I got to have more flexible thoughts. You got to put yourself in a situation where you can actually get stretched. So with those hockey players, Jack, were you able to get them at like 100% always having good sleep, whether they were at home or whether they were on the road? We've, uh, the least improvement we've ever had was 20%. So we've always improved their sleep by 20%. That's or great. More. So, it, it, wow. yeah, I love that. Well, I like that approach because what I'm hearing you say is, is like, hey, uh, don't aim for a 10 out of 10 sleep score every single night. Mm-hmm. Like just try to improve it incrementally. And like you said, like 20% better is better than no percent better. And that's why I gave you those 17 things. I was making this list all week. Like, what are the things that improve Beck's sleep, my wife, and my sleep? And I realized, like, all of these things were like 5% improvements or 3% or 7%. And all of a sudden, it's like, well, yeah, that's a 60% improvement, though, if you've done these 17 different things. And some things will impact us differently than others. But a tiny improvement here, a tiny improvement there. Oh, I got the better mattress now. All of a sudden, now I'm sleeping. So now also, you mentioned a great, great thing of, of not trying something for a day, three days. So when we're looking at athletes, we're looking at 10 weeks. Mm. And we see that improvement climbing. And it's, it's linear. It's going up, up, up. So we're getting more REM, more deep over 10 weeks. Mm. And it, it never dips down. It's only going up. So you know that after 10 weeks you've achieved much greater sleep. Yeah, Yeah, that's beautiful. Let's move on to some social media questions. You can follow The Minimalists on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at The Minimalists. Jenny has a question from us from Patreon. Can you discuss information about non-toxic mattress brands available in the US? I'm also curious about how light and circadian rhythms relate to sleep. Okay, so... We can talk about light and circadian rhythms, but since we have a question about mattresses and we have Jack here who founded a mattress company, it seemed to me that what you did when you founded Essentia was you realized there was this giant void because there's so much toxic material that goes into the manufacturing of the thing we spend a third of our lives on if we're lucky, right? So let's talk a bit about non-toxic mattresses. 
So yeah, the mattress world is is a little weird. It's it's there's sort of like uh, when we talk about minimalist, there's minimalist. There's there's the uh, economical general brands, and then everything else is typically just fluff and things that you don't need. Mm. And, and so we got into this space where no one was really caring about sleep and 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 wellness. So we're we're a wellness company before we're um, an actual mattress company. In the in the organic space, um, it's the best step to go in. So what? No, no matter which brand, if you're going to go into an organic mattress, why? Because you're eliminating one of the biggest pollutants in your in your bedroom is the mattress. Yeah. That's what's emitting the most toxins toxins from polyurethanes mm-hmm. from glues, and it's in your sleep environment. Wow. You know, in in fact, most of the thing other things in your home are inert and don't have the concentration as as most mattresses do. So when you're going organic, you've eliminated that number one stimulant that you you really have no control of. You can shut the lights, you can you can uh, adapt to the sounds as you want, but once you put in that giant block into your into your room, you're breathe, breathing in bad air and that keeps your central nervous system active. Mm-hmm. Um, Especially during the first six months or so where it's off gassing as well. And so you're, you're breathing in even more toxins. Abs- absolutely. You hear about yeah. people getting rashes on their skins, all kinds of things can yeah. happen. Autoimmune but responses. Those were the, you know, uh, I've learned the most uh, from the people we were serving when we first launched a company, which were going through their biggest uh, health challenges. And I've learned the most through the athletes, both extremes. Mm-hmm. And they've taught me the most about, you know, because ev- everyone else in between is almost unaware of their body because their body's not overreacting to any any environmental circumstance. Mm. Um, so from those that are overreacting, we, we need to realize that just because you may fit into that group, which is not either an over-physical achiever and very much in tune with your body, or you're not ill, the environment is still attacking you in, yeah. the, same, in the same exact way. You're just not conscious of it. Um, so ultimately... The issue with organic beds that where we pivoted to go what we call beyond organic is just the materials alone are great because they've eliminated that number one stimulant, which is uh, toxicity. But what they haven't addressed is allergens, where 25% of people uh, have overreact- overreactions to allergens, whether it be to, uh, proteins from latex or proteins from dust mites. Um, so... We, what we focus on is eliminating any of the nesting pads. So anytime you see a you know beautiful quilted bed, uh-huh. that's a nest. <laughs> so you want to have you you want to be sleeping directly on the rubber block because that's not going to house any of your skin exfoliation. It's not going to be a great hydrating point with your your mm. perspiration for dust mites to have their their great home in um, and heat. So. T- to me, there are three things. If you cut it short, what are the three most important things out of a mattress is no toxicity, no allergens, and no pain. Yes. Pain, pain seems kind of obvious, right? Mm-hmm. When, when people Generally, people decide to change mattress when they're feeling pain, mm-hmm. uh, not when they're smelling toxins. <laughs> <laughs> right. But, yeah. but, but that's, the, that's the whole thing. So that, those are the, when, you, when you've got those three covered, how we go way beyond that. We go into every possible stimulant you know, like we've mentioned from EMFs to, to uh, you know, proper oxygen flow and blood flow. But those are the three majors and uh, looking for organic mattresses that address those three are pretty important. Yeah. Let's talk circadian rhythm. Reset my timer real quick, Professor Sean, because I want to uh, 
talk about how every day is a chance to begin again. We learn this in meditation, but also beginning again with respect to the circadian rhythm, getting that first light when sunrise is, is up, I'm already outside getting the sun on my face and skin and in my eyes because I'm not staring directly at the sun. But, <laughs> <laughs> but this is cueing my body to say, oh, this is daytime, right? I told my daughter the other day, she said, I, I really want to sleep in. I said, did you know that going to bed early is the same thing as sleeping in? <laughs> she, go, she looks at me, she goes, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess you could tweet that podcast, Sean. Yeah, yeah, please, That's please good. retweet that. That's but good. but it, it's true that I tend to go to bed relatively early between 8 and 9 p.m. And I get up early right before sunrise, generally. I used to get up way earlier. Ryan, you remember this when we mm -hmm. lived together. I used to get up like 3.30 a.m. Like my body would just wait because my circadian rhythm was so off. I'm uh -huh. coming but home. Josh is getting up. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> His circadian rhythm was also off. Right. <laughs> and what I realized is that once I started, began starting my day with sunlight, it reset everything and helped me sleep better that night, which is, you don't even think about because it's first thing in the morning. I'm setting myself up for that evening to sleep better. Interesting little device out there. Have you you've heard or ever tried a Dawn Simulator? No. Mm -mm. So uh, Dawn, uh, Dawn Simulator is basically is a, is a light globe, um, which is uh, instead of an alarm clock, you set this Dawn Simulator. Let's say you set that you want to wake up at 5 a.m. Well, it'll start to glow at about 20 minutes before. And when it's time to wake up, it will have the day, high noon daylight environment in your bedroom. Mm. So when you wake up, first of all, it was gradual. It's no sounding noise or, or alarm. But all of a sudden, you feel completely awake. So we, we, were, we were part of this uh, uh, group called Stay Well for Wellness Travelers. And um, they put in our mattresses and, and properties like the Bellagio MGM. And again, we're not promoting those properties, but we're just saying that in these hotels. And when I go there on my travels and realize that, you know, I'm offset from, because I'm, I'm from East Coast time to West Coast time, I'd get into these blacked out rooms and put on a dawn simulator and you're completely wide awake because you're getting a high noon bright light. Mm. And anybody that doesn't believe that circadian rhythm is real, just get yourself experiment in a blackout room and you'll see that those dawn simulators trigger the mind and your body knows when to wake up, mm. when to be awake. And daylight and outdoors is, is really what it's all about. Something I learned from, I think it was Eckhart Tolle. He, uh, he talks about how um, when you're really in tune with your awareness, you're able to tell your body when to wake up. Basically what he's saying is like, if, you are, if you have a healthy circadian rhythm, for lack of a better term, you and I've noticed this with me. Like if Bex needs to go to the airport and she's, I need to get up at three forty-five a.m. Like, can you set an alarm? I, I don't need to. I'll just tell myself to get up at three forty-five. <laughs> and this works for me. I don't. I'm not suggesting this. I'm not recommending it. <laughs> yeah, I was about to say that's a lot of faith tomorrow. in yourself. <laughs> yeah, I do have a lot of faith in myself. <laughs> but um, but uh, and even outside of this, but specifically here. Because what I've realized is my circadian rhythms. Another thing I do is with grounding, but I also ground on the actual ground first thing in the morning when I'm getting that sunlight in there. And it's all part of that circadian rhythm. Whereas before my rhythm was so off, I needed to have an alarm because I was exhausted. But now in the morning when I wake up, except for this morning because of the whole food poisoning thing last night, I, uh, but generally most mornings I wake up and I'm actually refreshed mm. because that rhythm has been reset.
One of the most interesting things that we've done in, in, in analyzing and just taking uh, data from people who have participated in, in different studies with us is when it comes to circadian rhythm and, and, and lighting, to me, it equals happiness. If you are, um, if you are eliminating the synthetic light, exposing yourself to daylight, really respecting those hours, you're actually a happier person. Yes. So that, that light has a direct impact on, mm. on, on, on satisfaction mm. and happiness. The opposite is also true. If we're constantly staying up and with the artificial light and the LEDs and all this stuff blasting in our eyeballs, the glowing screens, it can make us miserable. Yep. And we don't Depression. realize it right away. And uh, it's the same thing like with diet. You eat the delicious piece of cake and it's delicious and you don't realize you're doing this constantly. Mm -hmm. That's what we're doing with our sleep patterns. It's like we're gorging on unnatural environments that are making us miserable. Mm. Well, the thing about like, I I like that food analogy because the artificial food doesn't just deprive you of the whole food, but it actually compromises your ability to be delighted in it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's almost like the body will say, well, why would I take that apple when I can have those M&Ms, mm-hmm. right? Like, like just, just take the needle and put the sugar directly into my arm, right? And it, it's the same with sleep, right? We get so addicted to this artificial mm-hmm. light, it's almost as if we become less attracted mm. to sunlight. You know, we become comfortable in our... And become yeah. addictions, you know, all, all the synthetic and or, or when it comes to food, chocolate, sugars, they become addictions because they actually don't have that long range of, 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 of slow energy output in your body, right? You take sugars and, and it spikes you for the next 20 minutes and then you'll need more to keep going. Yeah, you pay the price. Yeah. And the same is true with our sleep. Yeah, with sleep. If we don't sleep. have that circadian rhythm right, then we're going to pay the price the next day. We're punishing our future self by not getting the sleep that we need today. Our next question is from Rebecca on Patreon. I have a history of insomnia and anxiety, and I struggle to sleep longer than two to three hours, even with prescription sleeping pills. I've looked into sleep clinics, but they don't seem to work with anxiety-related insomnia. Are there any resources for someone with my type of insomnia? I'll say this. Every solution is found within the problem. So it could be that anxiety... Remember, we had Dr. John Deloney on the podcast Mm -hmm. and he wrote a book about anxiety. Yeah. Anxiety, we don't want to... I love his metaphor. Anxiety is merely the smoke alarm, right? And there are two things you can do to kill the smoke alarm. You can extinguish the fire, the thing that's making you anxious, or you can just go take the batteries out of the smoke alarm, which is often what we want to do when we, um, when we try to, to extinguish our anxiety or even our depression. I had a medical doctor tell me that we have mislabeled antidepressants. They're not really antidepressants. They're anti-feeling medications, right? Mm. Because yes, it Uh is true that it often kills and it helps in that state when we're really, really, really anxious or really, really, really depressed. It helps out with that. But it also numbs all those other emotions that we want to feel, right? Mm. And so can we talk a bit about anxiety and sleep? Because it seems they fuel one another. If I'm not getting enough sleep, what's going to happen? I get more anxious and then it's harder for me to sleep and then I get more anxious. And it is the self-fulfilling prophecy in a way. One of the things I would address in that question is uh, using sleeping pills and narcotics for sleep. That actually doesn't work. Mm. So, so to me, sure feels like it works sometimes. Well, <laughs> it, because it works on the conscious level. Yeah, right. Uh, it actually never takes you to the REM sleeps and deep sleeps. Right, it keeps right. you in a awakened stage of sleep way more. So you'll always wake up groggy. You'll never have the satisfaction or the need 
or the recovery that your body gives you. I mean, I, I say that those those type of drugs are great for when, you know, post-surgery, post-major incident where you just need to be knocked out mm -hmm. consciously. But in the long run, uh, those things keep you always in a lighter level of sleep and uh, prevent you from getting the full benefits of recovery uh, mentally and physically that you're supposed to get out of REM and deep sleep. Yeah, I was on Ambien, uh, I don't know, when I was like 25, 26, 27, something like that. And it was like the so worst. just two years ago. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you can tell by this face. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was, it was the worst thing I ever did to try and sleep. It, it was, uh, I thought it was helping me. But, like, I had the weirdest incidences on Ambien. Like, I know I wasn't actually sleeping. Like, I finally got off because Josh and I were on tour. And he was like, dude, you just, like, you just, like, stand up and start talking. And he's like, I have no idea what you're saying. Can we tell them the, yes. my favorite Ambien, Fine, Ryan, yes. story? So, so I, I'm, I'm, I'm sleeping. I'm having this dream. Um, I'm having this dream about eating, uh, like, some Chinese food. And it was like very vivid and I wake up and I can like, I just, just remember in this dream, I'm like, oh my goodness, like that was such a vivid dream. Like I can still like taste the Chinese food in my mouth <laughs> and I'm getting ready for work and I'm walking out the, 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 the garage door, which I have to go through my kitchen to get to my garage. And as I'm walking out, I see on the counter, there's a plate of soy sauce. <laughs> sitting on my counter. <laughs> that I clearly got up in the middle of the night just poured soy sauce on a plate <laughs> and I must have drank a little bit of it because I, I could taste it. I was like, this is the most vivid dream I've ever had in my life. Oh my and you would have, you would have thought I would have like, just, uh, you know, stopped taking Ambien at that point. Um, but yeah, it wasn't until like later when what, like Josh just confirmed, he's like, dude, like every night he's like, you have to like s stop getting up and talking to me. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, I can't help it. But I'm telling you, when I got off of Ambien, it was like the withdrawal from Ambien is horrible, man. It's mm. so bad. And like, if you rely on it, then you're just, you're not going to get, like you said, you're not going to get any deep sleep or REM sleep. And now you're just addicted to a narcotic because Ambien is technically a narcotic. My, my mom lived in a tall a skyscraper in Chicago and she was on sleeping pills. I don't know if it was Ambien or some other pill at the time. And she found she was sleepwalking all the time, like mm. actual, like leaving her apartment. Once she woke up naked on the elevator on a different floor in her building. Oh, wow. And had no idea how she, she just woke, she was standing there and became conscious in the middle of it and realized like, oh, this is probably not the best solution. In fact, this solution has turned into the problem. By the way, great premise for a horror movie, like a sleepwalking nun. Can you imagine? Waking oh up in the middle goodness. of the night, you see like a nun coming at you like, <laughs> we know what doesn't work. Jack, I would like to hear you say more about the anxiety keeping me from sleeping part. So I, I, I think with, with that, it, it's, it's really planning your, your, your routine before you get to sleep. Uh, those are thoughts and we, we need to reduce those brain activities. I think from what I've seen with some of the, uh, um, some of the people we've worked with, what's worked most effectively has been, in fact, the blue light blocking glasses. It really stops that mm. thought process brain activity. So so to me, those last three hours, uh, right before going to sleep, no more food, uh, managing your light and, and, and blue light blocking, the, the type of sounds, the type of aromatherapy, you really need to put some focus on that. And again, it's not going to be over one night, like we've discussed here, really plan on 10 weeks. I'm, I'm sure I've seen it firsthand with people we've worked with, um, that that anxiety gets reduced and sleep improves. Mm. Yeah. Ryan, what time is it? 
You know what time it is. It's time for the lightning round where we answer your text messages. You can text your questions, your comments to 937-202-4654. Yes, indeed. Now, Jack, during the lightning round, this is where we and our guests do our best to answer questions with a short, shareable, less than 140 character response, but not really. <laughs> Professor Sean puts a minute on the clock for you so you can ramble on a bit. Uh, we have a question today from Barr. By the way, we put the uh, text to these. We call them minimal maxims. You put them, we put them in the show notes so you can copy and share our pithy answers on social media if you'd like. And you can find all of our minimal maxims in one place now, minimalmaxims.com. Alabama, what's Barb's question? How much deep sleep are we really supposed to get nightly? So here's my, my pithy answer for you. You can put a minute on the clock for me, Professor Sean. One man's enough is too much for the next man. Now, what do I mean by that? We all have individual needs. I've noticed this with my wife. We'll often go to bed at the same time and I will get through my sleep cycles and I will wake up an hour, two hours before her, but I'll still end up with more deep sleep or more REM sleep than her. And so figuring out what is enough is individual. It's perspectival. Well, I did that in less than a minute. Let's Let's put a minute on the clock for Ryan Nicodemus. Oh, my pithy answer is this. Living well will help you sleep well. And I think we covered this. Exercise, not drinking caffeine past a certain time, cutting out alcohol, not eating before bed. I mean, all of these things are going to help you get better deep sleep. I mean, to sit here for me to to measure my deep sleep every single night is going to stress me out. <laughs> Rather, I would just like ha- have some good uh, habits in my life that will, uh, by default, help me get better deep sleep. Now, I don't know how true this is, but I read this article about how deep sleep. There's a specific doctor who was talking about how deep sleep can be connected directly with Alzheimer's. Have you heard this at all? I have, yes. Okay. Is is there any truth to that? I haven't done any of that type of uh, research or studying on it, but uh, that's... that's But you're aware of the research I'm aware of the research. Mm. I've got a close friend that's very involved in that, Mm. and uh, they're following it really closely. Yeah, yeah. It's nothing that's proven yet, but... um, There, there are some like loose loose links or even not so loose links tied to Alzheimer's. So yeah, deep sleep is definitely important. I will say this with your last six seconds. It's also tied to schizophrenia, uh, less having less deep sleep. And so mm. it's something worth... Oh, I'm out of time. Let's put a minute <laughs> on the clock for TK Coleman. All right, here's my pithy. I said it, I said it right for the first time in history. Here's my pithy. <laughs> the only thing you're supposed to do is discover what works for you and then dive in. Whenever you're struggling between a few different viable options, I would say create a low-cost experiment where for a predetermined amount of time and a predetermined cost, you can explore it to see how you feel afterwards. You can do almost anything for 30 days. I tend to like 30-day experiments in personal development or 30-day personal development projects where I say, I'm going to try this thing for 30 days. And then afterwards, I'm going to take a look at my results and ask myself, do I want more of this or do I want less of this? So many growth strategies, health practices, and personal development techniques are similar to clothes. You know if a shoe fits by trying it on. You know if a shirt fits by trying it on. And it's not until you try it on that you can actually tailor it to your unique situation. That's beautiful. Right under a minute, too. Look at that. <laughs> so, Jack, let's uh, let's take us home here. With, with Barb, she really wants to know about deep sleep and, and how much is enough, how much is too little. What do you have to say to her? <clears throat> so, um, to, to, in all the cases that we work with, we're looking at, Everyone's got a certain amount of deep sleep and REM sleep that they're getting with all their bad habits and all the negative routines. Um, so the point for us is how do we 
improve it because everyone improving. And that's where I was telling you earlier about some of the players were getting minimum 20% improvement. Well, that's going to be the game changer. That's going to be the life changer. So mm. if you're getting, you know, uh, only 20% uh, 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 in, in deep sleep cycles and we get that to 24%, 25%, that's actually life changing. Mm, yeah. And so that's where you're right on where this is individual for everyone. Some people will manage to clock in two hours. Some people manage to clock in three hours. But the difference is if we're taking you to two hours to two hours and 15 minutes, it's a game changer for you. Mm. Three hours to three hours and 20 minutes. So that that's really, th there's no one number that matches for everyone. But the goal is how, how do you create this environment and how do you eliminate these stimulants to bring up that number? Because, you know, REM sleep will have direct link to mental recovery. Deep sleep will have direct link to your physical recovery. You'll, you'll get off that injury uh, list a lot sooner. We were doing a lot of work with, um, uh, with players and, and, and trainers, even looking at concussions. Mm. Ultimately, sleep and deep these deep sleep cycles are the foundation to all of your wellness. Yeah, you're Ooh. healing yeah. everything else. Everything. Well, that's pithy too. You yeah, tweet that's that. the pithy one right there. Deep sleep is <laughs> is yeah, relation to your overall wellness. That's great. Here's what I'll say to wrap this up: is I noticed when I first got with my wife, her and she started tracking her sleep. She was getting around nine minutes a night of deep sleep, almost no deep sleep. Wow! And now she's getting over an hour, sometimes two hours a night because of those dozen things that we talked about earlier on the private podcast, tweaking each one of those gave 5% here, 7% there, 8% there. And all of a sudden she's getting multiple hours a night of deep sleep, totally changed her life. It's like, she's a totally different person. Ladies and gentlemen, let's thank Jack for being here today. Yeah. Thanks so much for being here, man. This is great. Thanks guys. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you. We'll put a link to his company, Essentia, in the show notes. Maliban, we got so much more to talk about, some other segments. Mal, you and I are going to argue a bit about yeah, light bulbs. <laughs> I'll be the referee. We're going to do a home <laughs> tour as well. What else you got for us in the meantime? Here are some minimalist comments and insights from our listeners. Hi, this is Marissa from South Bend, Indiana. I recently had a packing party for my iPhone. I removed all my apps from the home screen, which is different than deleting them. This means they will just be on the last page and you have to search for it by name to bring it up. Then for two weeks, when I needed an app, I would add it back to my home screen. After the two weeks were done, I deleted all the apps I didn't use anymore. Hi, Josh and Ryan. This is Jennifer in Rochester, New York. I have two short comments. I just wanted to remind everybody that instead of asking for experienced gifts or not asking for gifts, you can also ask for donations to your favorite charity. My cousin did this at her wedding and it was wonderful. You could leave a donation and you could leave your name along with the donation so they would know that you gifted to them. Concerning your podcast with Rich Roll, I wanted to remind everyone about the grocery store Aldi. If it is in your city, please check it out. They're having a larger and larger assortment of organic foods. They have grass-fed beef you can purchase and it's very affordable. Welcome back to The Minimalists. Big thanks to Jack for joining us today. We're going to talk yeah. more about sleep. Patrons, we have some comments and uh, questions from the live stream. We'll get to those in a moment. But one thing we forgot to talk to Jack about, Ryan, is uh, supplements sometimes yeah. that help. And uh, I gave my list to TK because he's like, oh, can I have that list? You got these 17 different things on here that help sleep. And the one thing I forgot to mention was the supplements. And I don't do these, but Bex does. Melatonin, melatonin, which you were talking about. Sometimes you'll wake up in the middle of the night and have to take, take a melatonin. Yeah, like I'll wake up. If I wake up at 
basically anytime before 5 a.m. Because uh, if I take it at 5 a.m., then I'll sleep till 9, easy. But if I wake up before 5 a.m., um, I will give myself about 15 minutes to fall back asleep. And if I don't, then I'll, I have like melatonin literally sitting on my bed, like the one that you put under your tongue and it dissolves. Mm-hmm. And it, really, it does put me back to sleep. But I just wonder like, how much am I relying on this, you know? Yeah, it becomes a a, a thing that we rely on. Now yeah. it's different because it's something your body makes and you're just supplying yourself with more of it. Ben Greenfield did a great podcast about melatonin. Podcast, Sean, let's put that in the show notes for folks. Or you can just Google Ben Greenfield melatonin. He had a guy in there who recommends really, really, really high dose melatonin. Yeah. And wow. I've tried that before and it destroys me the next day. Yeah, I get a melatonin hang. That's why yeah. I don't do melatonin regularly. I'll do it if I really if we're on tour and I know I need to sleep that night because we have an event the next day and the next day and the next day. Then I will take melatonin. I do take magnesium mm-hmm. most nights, like calm. Uh, yes, yeah, not not really. That that tends to make my stools a bit loose. Mm, <laughs> Although yeah, it's pretty you, potent. <laughs> if you, it, it's really helpful for a lot of people. So I'll take like just thorn magnesium citrate. Okay, and uh, the citrate. And okay. so what I've noticed is if you take just a couple of those, it will like it helps with your morning bowel movements. Mm-hmm. If you take too many. It helps a little too much. Oh, yeah. You know about this. I've drank too much calm before. Yeah. If you yeah. take too much uh, You don't make calm, that mistake too magnesium. many times. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's rough. Uh, TK, the other thing was GABA. This is something that uh, Jess Ness, uh, social Jess, put me on to a while ago. And I know Bex takes that from time to time as well. So those supplements are just that. They are supplemental to everything else you can remove from your life. That's why I say subtraction is greater than addition because you can add all these different things to improve your sleep environment, but quite often improving your sleep environment, you can do for free by removing the things Mm. that are disturbing your sleep. Ryan, you're a great case of this because you effectively sleep sleep in a separate bed from your wife. Yes, technically. Even though they're pushed together, right? Yes. And if you really needed to, let's say you were having a really rough night, I suppose you could pull them two or three inches apart. It'd It'd be pain in the butt, but we could. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I could do anything with the right attitude, Josh. (laughs) (laughs) Let's do more about less. This is a little segment we do as a jump off point to talk about something. We got tweets to talk about today. Yeah, our... Talk about pithy, uh, talk about more about less. (laughs) Let's get uh, 12 minutes on the clock here. Now, Steve Patterson is the reason that we met TK Coleman. He interviewed TK. Shout out to my main man, Steve. Steve, thank you so much. I listened to this episode that they did together. I'm like, I really like both of these guys. And there was whatever conversation I wanted to have. I'm like, TK would be perfect for this. So I reached out to him and he came out to the podcast that first time and then ended up doing 11 guest spots. It was pretty much love at first sight, man. (laughs) (laughs) How how can you not fall in love with those eyes over there? (laughs) So our More About Less segment, we read something as a jump off point and reading a tweet or two tweets here, both from Steve Patterson. And I think we all have varying beliefs around this topic. That's why I thought it'd be so interesting because here's what I realized. I listened to Steve do a podcast recently with Brett Weinstein and they disagreed in ways that felt like they were agreeing. And it feels to me like that that's what we often do. Like, I don't agree with you, but I'm not bludgeoning you to death. I'm not trying to be righteous or right. I'm trying to better understand your point of view. Even if I continue to disagree with it, help me understand it. Yeah, And, and Brett has been an interesting figure for some time, but 
that whole, what do you call it? The intellectual dark web, or uh, I, I forget, you know, but um, like right around 2020, having a lot of these debates and arguments and controversial discussions. Um, and he has, he has been at the forefront of that. And so when, when I found out Steve was going to be on the show, I was like, oh, this is going to be a real interesting conversation. You know, yeah. Yeah. we'll put a link to that in the show notes. I found it fascinating because I, I heard them talk about philosophy and science and yeah. religion and ideologies and a bunch of other things. And Steve took him to task on certain things, mm -hmm. but did it in a way where it wasn't blaming or fault finding. Yeah. It was exploring. Mm. And I want to explore with this tweet from Steve Patterson. He's at Patterson or he's at Steve in pursuit. His podcast is called Patterson in pursuit. And he tweeted this. I recently got a new car repair guy. Salt of the earth type tries not to overcharge people works all the time. It's pretty crazy to think that some percentage of his wealth was just transferred to the upper middle class to kids who would sneer at him for not having a degree. TK, what say you? Mm. Man, I had to I had to ponder on that one for a while. That last line, sneering at him for not having a degree. I think what's tragic about that is that the very guy that's being sneered at for not having a degree probably creates more value and works harder and demonstrates more integrity in his work than so many others who hide behind credentials. Who you are is not the result of the letters behind your name. It's not the result of the institution that you associate yourself with. It's not the result of who you wrote a check to in return for having the privilege of being able to say, I studied there. It's the result of how you take the resources of the earth combine them with your talents to do something that solves problems for other people. And we live in this world that teaches our children that who you are is the result of having some credential. And no, it's, it's, it's the result of being like that guy mm. saying, regardless of my label, I'm going to do something for people. Well, let's talk about what we're talking about here specifically, Ryan. Recently, we found out that people who have college debt, and this sounds great to me, by the way, like being absolved of all your college debt. For me, I think I probably hold a different position from both you and TK. I think TK's is probably similar to, to Steve's here. I mean, at first I hear it and I'm like, wow, yeah, of course, we, we people have been saddled with too much debt. Forgiving the debt makes a whole lot of sense. But then you realize where does the money come from? And it comes from this repair guy who never had the college debt in the first place. Uh. Ryan, you and, I both, you and I both have a friend who went to Harvard and $10,000 of his debt was just erased. Yeah. It literally just took me like this second to realize what that tweet was referring to. I was going to ask because I suspected it was that, <clears throat> yeah, but I wasn't the, sure. The, the debt forgiveness. I don't know, man. I don't know, dude. It's, I, I, I get both sides. It's hard, it's hard for me to be like, oh, I'm for debt forgiveness. And then there's another side of me that's like agrees with what he's saying. I mean, well, this is such a... Why do you assume there are sides? When you say you get both sides, what are the sides? The sides are either you are um, grateful that some of this debt is forgiven or you're like, you support it or you don't support it. Mm -hmm. This sounds like it's not supporting it. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah. So, 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 so it's for or against is, is, is what it sounds like. And I just, I don't think it's that simple to be for or against it. But what were you going to say, TK? Well, I think it's interesting. You just mentioned the friend from Harvard, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Who's a pastor, by the way. Mm -hmm. So like, it's, it's not like he's upper middle class. 
He he is. I mean, he makes six figures a year. So oh okay. Oh damn. Yeah. We should be pastors. We're starting a religion. <laughs> pastors. <laughs> pastors. Oh. Well, well, here's what's interesting about that. And I and I I know uh, Steve and I both share a mutual admiration for Thomas Sowell, the economist, who says that. And I quote this a lot: that you can't judge the value of a policy based on. Uh, the rhetoric behind it, but based on the results, not based on the sincerity of the intentions, Mm -hmm. but based on the actual outcomes it has in people's lives, because sincerity is not a substitute for truth, right? Having good intentions is not a substitute for having positive effects. There are a lot of people who hurt other people in an effort to help them, and they are genuine in their effort to help, but they create a lot of harm. And one of the problems with these kinds of policies is that it puts us in a position where we feel like we have to be for or against something based on rhetoric, when in reality, there's an there's a real gap between the rhetoric that's used to sell these policies and the actual results. The rhetoric that's used to sell these policies is that, hey, there are poor people over here who are, are swimming in debt and we want to make things better for them and, and we want to treat them fairly. But is that who's really being helped? I'm not saying there are no people in that category who are being helped, but you always have stories like this where people that are benefiting from this are people that are not part of the rhetoric that's used to sell us on these policies. And so it's very interesting that to critique these kinds of policies makes you sound like someone who hates the poor when a lot of the hatred that's directed at the poor comes from many of the policies that are enshrouded in rhetoric that is for the poor. I think it's funny how we love to to shred different policies. Let's talk about, name one of the, perfect policies we have right now in the, in the United States of America? Well, I, I don't I don't think any policies are right. perfect and I'm not shredding policies. I'm actually shredding the practice of not being honest about the gap between what we say to sell policies. Hey, I'm going to do this to help black people mm-hmm. and then the beneficiaries are someone else. There's nothing wrong with helping someone else, but don't promise that you're going to do this and then do that. Yeah. And I just want to be clear. I'm not saying that None of us are shredding it. I mean, this tweet is is kind of sh- is shredding it a little bit. Um, I'm not saying that's what we're doing here, but I think with any policy, you're going to have people who are helped. You're going to have people who are who don't need the help. Um, but it's, it's hard fun- to get elected it- if you're honest like that. You know what <laughs> yeah. I mean? Watch me, Coleman Nicodemus, <laughs> 2032. <laughs> no, look, man. Here's the thing: is that uh, going to kids who would sneer at him for not making... This is such a generalization because our friend from Harvard would never sneer at anybody for not having a degree. So, I mean, I get the tweet. I get the sentiment. Yeah, America's in debt, um, but so are its citizens. Um, Was this a political... It was probably a political move. Hey, man, vote for me. You know, vote for us in the midterms, you know? I mean, that's probably what it was. But um, I know people who were directly affected by this that... um, really, really, really help their their, their lives out. Um, John, you had something you wanted to butt in. Yeah, I have a question. And sorry, I'm going to be the reason we go over on this topic. <laughs> but um, you you said that it, w- it is being paid for by people like the uh, mechanic. But, I didn't say that. That's what Steve oh, that's said. What Steve said, yes. Mm-hmm. But isn't it actually being paid for by the interest of the borrowers who in many cases have already paid way more than they borrowed, even though they have not yet paid off the debt? Mm. So I think what you're saying here, and, I, and here's where you and I align on this probably, is it's a predatory system in the first place. So oh, yeah. absolutely. to oh, yeah. me, it makes sense to forgive all student loan debt and then never encourage it ever again. Yes. For the government to step in and say, hey, you know what? We fleeced you. We told you that college was this wonderful thing that was going to make you a better person, make you earn more money. And, and here's what happened. We 
were mistaken or we were lying to you. And we guaranteed these loans and never allowed you to be forgiven. Even if you went into bankruptcy, it became this huge problem. And so if you're actually going to forgive everyone's student loan, for, do a blanket forgiveness. Now, does that still hurt someone like Ryan who paid off his student loans? Yeah, theoretically, yes. Um, or forget it, it, me who paid off. Even though I didn't graduate college, I had $24,000 in student loan debt. Figure that math out. And mm. I paid all of that off. Go ahead. I have one great counter to that. Um, that's like looking at the trolley problem and saying that you're not going to change the course of the trolley because the trolley has already hit five people over and over and over again earlier in the track and it wouldn't be fair to them. I just aimed the train at the the track with the most people on it. But but you're not talking about the past. You're not saying, hey, don't do this because there are people who in the past, from the past who won't benefit from it. You're saying, hey, all right, you're okay with them solving the problem this way, but let's put an end to the root of the problem, Mm -hmm. which is this system of of debt and selling people on a false hope. Hey, this is America, baby. (laughs) <laughs> Which, we live on debt. This country uh, was built on debt. Brings me brings me to another tweet from Steve Patterson here. <laughs> Put another nine minutes on the clock for me. This is from Steve in Pursuit. He says, I must confess to all my future employers and readers, my college education was a joke. My degree means a little more than I am patient enough to find a way to live through four years of educational farce. That was so relatable. Oh, my stars. Yeah, but tell that to the surgeon who's operating on your grandmother, though. It's okay, but I'm a believer that college is a scam because you have some people that do need the credentials, like doctors, people that work in medicine, sciences, etc., I did not need a degree for theater. Yeah, like, no, me that's, either. That's the butt of every joke as a theater and then an, an English degree. But it really does make you feel kind of like a joke. You rack up all of this debt. You graduate with honors. You've got all the credentials and stuff and nobody hires you. But you know what's interesting though? Even with a, even with a theater thing, I think like I have thought about taking theater classes just mm-hmm. because, you know, I've got, I'm in LA and like I'd love to do some comedy stuff. Uh, I, I've been in a couple plays I've had people tell me, they're like, dude, you have a really good stage presence, but like you need to take a couple theater classes. Yeah. So I, I have like totally have thought about that before. But if I ever took a theater class, I would go into the the thought and maybe it's hard to tell an 18 year old this, but I would go into the thought of like, this is a risk. Like if I go to this theater class, it's such a small percentage of people who graduate with this mm-hmm. that actually do something with it. And I'm not saying that it's good or bad to take that risk, but even with a theater theater degree, there are plenty of actors and actresses out there who owe their lives to Juilliard or they owe their lives to, you know, whatever theater school that they went to right. and their careers to that. And then there are other actors and actresses who have never taken a a class in their life. Exactly. You know? And so, what, what happens is we conflate schooling and education. There we go. Yes. Yeah. There we and go. education and experience are not treated as the same amount of value. And I think I think they can be. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. I, to I, to I totally agree. I totally agree with that. 100%. Two quick things. One thing that happens a lot in, in discussions on like college schooling and education is we take principles that only apply to a minority and then we um, transfer it over to things that apply to a majority. So for instance, Everyone is sold on the doctrine of you need a degree to be a player in the world. Yes. And then we, you know, when someone critiques that or questions that, we point out the lawyer, the accountant, the surgeon, and so on. But it's the overwhelming majority of people who go to college. It's not even close. 100%. They're not going to school for law. No. They're not going to school to be a doctor. And so even if we just sat that on the shelf, let's focus on all the people that are going into debt 
to get degrees in anthropology, to get degrees in theater. Nothing wrong with that, with those subjects, but there's something wrong with the hope that they are being sold. The second thing I would say, you know, like if you wanted to go into theater and you wanted to go into acting, here's why it's so important to make that distinction between education and schooling. Think about all of the real actors. And I define real actor as people who actually have a resume where they're experienced in theater, people who get paid to do acting, people that are like the people that actors want to be like, Mm -hmm. right? Like I I define a real actor as when I go to someone who wants to take an acting class and I say, who do you want to be like? And and they're not going to tell me their college professor. They're going to tell me somebody that's on Broadway, somebody that's on TV. Those types of people, people that have been in commercials, they're teaching acting classes out there. You don't get a degree in return for those acting classes, but you get to learn something from people that are getting paid to do the thing that you want to get paid to do. And I think you should always like, Look for evidence of success to substantiate people's claim to wisdom. Who do you want to be like? Go learn from them, mm-hmm. you know? And, and this idea that you got to do it in school, it's hurting so many people mm-hmm. because it, it prevents them from tapping into the options that are going to be a lot more cost efficient, you know? I, I think where the three of us agree is that we want to help people avoid debt as much as possible. And we want to help people avoid mistakes. And that's what this whole podcast is about. It's about talking about all our crappy mistakes. And yeah, yeah. my BS degree was just that. It was a BS degree. And you got I a was, bachelor's in science? Yeah. <laughs> really? <laughs> yes. I did not know that. Yeah, was, I thought you were making a joke. No, it really is. A, <laughs> I mean, he was making a joke. I mean, but yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, but no, really. Yeah, but like it was. Can I explain the joke to you real <laughs> quick now? <laughs> so, but, but, here, but here's the thing. Like, let me tell you what I got out of, out of that degree, though. I am the only... I am the only member of my family on both sides to to have a four year degree. So my, I might have like an aunt or something. Um, but I'll tell you, like when I graduated, my mom came, my brothers came, my sister came, and um, they were like, I have never seen them so proud of me. And it wasn't that I was like, oh wow, they're so proud of me. But I saw them. I saw their wheel. Like wow, if Ryan can, because I graduated at like thirty one, and I saw them looking at like, oh wow, if Ryan can make this change at thirty. So that's what I took away from it. Now, for all intents and purposes, for all intents and purposes. Mm. I always get that one wrong. Um, uh, uh, it was a waste of money. Absolute waste of money. But I, there is still something I could still take from it. But yeah, I think we're all three of us agree. It's like, hey, if, before you go into debt, before you you know dedicate four, six, eight years of your life to a degree, like make sure you're doing it very, very intentionally. Don't do it thinking that, oh, if I just make it through it, then I'm going to get out of college and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a million dollars a year. Like that's yeah. not how it works. Maybe yeah. in the 80s and early 90s, like that's you know, you were kind of opening some more doors, um, but it's it, it just doesn't work that way anymore. Yeah. Hey, hey Josh, I promise I'm going to be fast with this. <laughs> and I'm also going to breathe and calm down because I get so worked up. Do oh, I know. Too. <laughs> so then, I'm going to calm down. I, I got to breathe. Okay. <laughs> One important thing to think about with the risk, and I used this early when we had our first conversation on school, I believe, is risk is not just defined by the possibility that something may not work, but it's also determined by the costs that you invest in something. So one way you can reduce risk is by lowering the cost of the investment. Mm. We don't tend to get stressed out about buying toasters, mm-hmm. right? Because we know that the replacement cost is easy. Yeah. We know that if we buy a toaster that we don't like, we're not going to be homeless as a result of that purchasing decision. One of the reasons why I encourage education alternatives is because it's not just about helping people stay out of debt, but it's also about helping people Think about the process of becoming better human beings in ways that reduce costs and reduce the anxiety of making the wrong decision. Mm. When you're dedicating four years of your life and six figures of debt to a decision, you better be right. 
You better know what you're doing. Mm-hmm. You better love it. You better hope that you don't change your mind because that's a high cost. On the other hand, when you say, I'm just going to dedicate six to 12 months of my life to getting a job and getting experience and trying something new, even if at the end of that period, you don't like that, you didn't dedicate five years to find that out. You still have money. You still didn't accumulate any debt. You have professional work experience. You have a network. And then you can go do something else. And college isn't even off the table as an option if you feel like you need to do that. And that's the part of the discussion I think needs to be involved. It's not just about staying out of debt. It's also about opening yourself up to possibilities that don't have the same risk of costing you your life. Yeah. Let's talk about what's obscene here. It's obscene to give an 18-year-old five or six Mm. figures worth of debt that they will now be trapped for the rest of their lives to encourage them to do it, to tell them their life is going to be better when you have so many examples of people who went a different route because we're conflating school, schooling with education. I teach a writing class. I don't Mm. have a degree of any sort. And yet far more people, literally thousands of people have found immense value in the writing class, even though I don't have a piece of paper that says, I should be able to teach you writing. No, because they found value in the words that I write. They see that it's there on the page. And what degree I have or don't have is irrelevant. In fact, I've had high school students take the class. I've had medical doctors take the class. And everyone in between, people as uh, as English as a second language, people who have you know, growing up in America and they write relatively well, but they want to write that first book. The rising tide lifts all boats here. And what I realize is I have a recipe. And if I break that recipe down, I can help people understand how to write better. That's why the course is called How to Write Better, because it's not about here's your piece of paper. Now you're a better writer. Mm. No, I'm not worried about you being a writer. I'm worried about the writing. Ooh, it's much on. more mm. about the verb than it is about the noun. I don't care that you're a writer, but if you're sitting down and writing every day, then you are. Hey, there, there's a tweet. Uh, we, I, I need somebody to pull up the Twitter account of Mitchell Earl because I hope this tweet is pinned. But the last time I looked at his account, the tweet was pinned. And it's, it's a statement that goes along so well with, uh, with Josh's opening here. But, um, you know, one, one thing I'll say while, while podcast, uh, Professor Sean looks that up is whenever this topic comes up, man, there are always people who corner me to have to admit that there's someone out there for whom college works. Yeah, but of you course. Know, don't, don't pick on the poor little kids who go to college. Like, like, don't you agree that college works for someone? And, you know, not only do I agree that college works for someone, but there's no epidemic of people being bullied and harassed for going to college. It is the status quo. It is the more socially acceptable option. And yes, it's okay to go to college, but we don't have to take discussions about the viability of alternatives and make it something that we have to apologize to the status quo before we have. But here's the Mitchell Earl tweet that I love. Uh, It's a dialogue between entrepreneur, bank, student, and a bank. Hmm. Entrepreneur, Hmm. he goes to the bank. Hello, I would like to have a $50,000 loan, please. Bank, you've got to be kidding me. Your credit score is shit. Who told you this was a good idea? Student, but it's for college. Bank, reaches for rubber stamp. Say no more. Mm. Beautiful. Let's move on (laughs) to our next uh, segment here. Talk aboutables. We've got a few things to talk about. We already talked about the 17 different things that will improve your sleep. You can go back and listen to that But I had this metaphor, since we're on the topic of money and debt, I thought about this. I was 
I was at the supermarket. I was in the salt aisle. <laughs> a whole aisle? Yeah, at Air One, they have a whole aisle dedicated to salt. No That's no. wow. <laughs> no, they, <laughs> oh man, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta use, I gotta use, I, I gotta remember how gullible TK is. I'm, I'm gonna start using that against them. <laughs> Here's what I realized, though: money is like salt. You don't want it by itself because it lacks nutrition. Like no one just, all right, you don't have for lunch today? Salt, right? And money is the same thing. Having money just for the sake of having money doesn't really do much for us. But too little salt, the food is bland, right? If you don't have enough and you're scrounging to pay the bills, you can't afford your rent. You can't afford to pay that college tuition bill that is showing up every month now then you don't have enough. And that becomes a source of discontent. Mm. But of course, if you put too much salt on the food, what happens? Yeah, It sort of ruins everything. Mm-hmm. And so I, I thought about this as a metaphor. It's a great metaphor, yeah. man. And salt used to because we all, have an en- yeah, and we all have an endless supply of salt, by the way. Right. I mean, for all intents and, perp- all intents and purposes, why do we keep saying intensive? Why? I don't, just because I guess you're not that uh, skilled. Yeah, you know, I usually, I usually, actually, I usually <laughs> don't get that wrong. It's a common mix up. Like very common. Oh my goodness. Bleep that out. Bleep intensive <laughs> out. No, I mean, but we all do have, we all have an endless amount of salt. I mean, you go to a fast food place and just grab some packets of salt. Like it's very plentiful. And they, yeah, they'll give it to you for free. But once upon a time, there were wars fought over salt. Yeah. Right? yeah. And so let's talk about this. What, what am I, I, what am I not saying here? I'm not saying, well, money isn't a problem. No. Uh, money solves your money problems. If you have money problems, well, quite often, you know, more money, more problems. But really what we're talking about is money can amplify your existing problems. If you, It's like gasoline on the fire, yeah, right? Yeah. If you have really poor behaviors, it's the reason that lottery winners often end up dead within a few years of winning the lottery or at least broke and destitute, worse off than they were from before, is because it amplifies those pre-existing behavior patterns, right? People often think, if I just got enough money, then all of my behaviors are going to magically change. Yeah, they'll change in the sense that they'll be turned up, but they're not going to change in the sense that you're going to take on different behaviors. Mm. Right. Like, I've I've never agreed with the statement, money changes people. I don't think money changes people. I think it gives people the means by which they can more fully express who they already are. If you're dishonest, if you're an exploiter, if you're a manipulator, you can do a lot more of that with money. If you're uh, a materialist, you can be a broke materialist who doesn't have the financial power to act on your materialism. Mm. Money gives you the power to do that. Invisibly, it looks like you changed because you went from not buying anything to buying a lot of stuff, but it's just a more full expression of a mindset that was already there, which is why minimalism is an important topic to talk to people about, even if they are poor, because it doesn't take money and stuff to have a mindset that says everything I should do, everything I do should be oriented around money and stuff. Mm. And quite often we are searching for more money, more stuff, more space, more status, more, 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 without asking ourselves why. There's nothing wrong with having more money or more salt on your food, right? Yeah. Uh, the, the question is, why do I want more? Well, maybe it's going to enhance the flavor of this meal, the salt is. Or maybe that money is going to enhance my life in some way. Nothing wrong with that. Yeah. I'm not an ascetic. I'm not saying, well, you should really just sleep on broken glass. Forget the expensive mattress from Jack. Here's some broken glass that I crushed up for you. Deal with it. No, of course not. But the question is, 
when we reach a certain comfort level, I was talking to Ella about this the other day. She's nine. And she's like, I don't want to get outside my comfort zone. And I explained, I, I was explaining to her that because um, someone delivered a package to our house that didn't go to our house and she had to take it over to the neighbors and she was uncomfortable about. Mm. So that makes me uncomfortable. And I said, well, Ella, your discomfort is the place from which you grow, right? And she's like, but I want to stay in my comfort zone. I said, well, you're not going to grow at all in your comfort zone. And that's actually going to make you miserable long term because the more comfortable you are, think about if you sit here and you watch an iPad for 12 hours, how do you feel? She's like, I just don't feel good. <laughs> and we don't feel good because what we were talking about earlier, that flexibility is no longer there. We begin to atrophy our, our flexibility atrophies. We become more and more and more rigid the more comfortable we get. How old mm. is she now? Nine. Oh, man. Isn't it nice to be able to like talk to her about this? Stuff? I mean, you, you probably mm. can't talk to her about mimetic desires yet, but you're close. Yeah, I, I think that I can. <laughs> she doesn't always get it. But she <laughs> likes the fact that she doesn't get it. She is actually trying to understand now, mm. which is a beautiful thing. Yeah. Let's move on to a masseter trash it. A little Good. segment we do where we talk about, we talk to a listener about whether or not they should keep an item, whether they should let it go. And we get to decide. And whatever we say goes, and you have no choice. Today is from Kathy. By the way, you can, <laughs> you can send your Ambassador Trash It, qu- trash it questions to podcast at theminimalists.com. What do we got from uh, Kathy Malabama? We have her father's writing desk. Wake or, up, Danny. Me, her grandfather's sermon writing Ambassador desk. Ambassador Trash It, Danny. She sent this in, and it, I, I'm a fan of antique furniture, so I went, oh, I want it. I'll take it if you're trying to oh, get rid gorgeous. of it. that's gorgeous. That is it a is, nice desk. It's very darling. She said, I like modern industrial minimalist style, and this has a potential as a writing space, but it also has sentimentality because it was her grandfather's sermon writing desk, and he has his PhD in philosophy. There's also a really neat picture of it where it actually has a handwritten note on there that said that this desk and chair were presented to Reverend Perry M. Johnson to assist him in carrying on the Lord's work by the people that gifted it. And it's dated at 1947 That's pretty when cool. that was gifted. Here's the problem with sentimentality. Mm. Sentimentality makes us make weird decisions about a thing. It becomes a, a filter through which we make our decision. And it often obscures the view of the thing itself. Yeah. Is this thing useful? Does it mm. serve a purpose? Does it amplify the joy that is naturally in me? Does it enhance my life in some way? And if we can answer those questions without the sentiment, there's nothing wrong with having sentimental items. By the no. way, something is sentimental only when we assign sentimental value to the item. Yep. Sentimentality from a literary perspective is often frowned upon because it is tugging at the heartstrings. Well, why is that frowned upon? I would frown upon it too here because it forces us or at least encourages us to hold on to something that is well past its obsolete date. Now, it doesn't mean this is obsolete for everyone, but it sounds to me, Kathy, like this might be obsolete to you. And the only reason that you're holding on to it is because it has this rose-colored rear view, the, the nostalgia of, of the desk. But if it's outlived its purpose, if it's no longer serving you, it may actually be, be getting in the way of living more meaningfully. I'm trying to think of something pithy about, you know, holding, holding on to something just for its sentimentality is like holding on to your baby shoes and trying to wear them on a regular basis. Mm. It's like, I mean, there's mm. something pithier out there. Or should I say pythier? 
out there. <laughs> hey, that's good though. I know. That's a, yeah. that's something, there's something there. It's a hell of a metaphor, man. Yeah, it, yeah. it really is. Well, yeah, because it's like, you know, I remember as a kid, like there was a specific shirt I would wear. It was like a hoodie and it felt so good. I outgrew it eventually, you know? Yeah. And um, if I kept trying to wear that, over and over again to, to experience that comfort. Like I'm never going to get that same comfort out of it and holding on to it for the sake of it isn't going to give me that comfort. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, for me, it's like, that's a beautiful desk. I would put that thing to use personally, but if that doesn't fit your style, then get rid of it. Donate it. Have, have somebody else, have somebody else use that and, and uh, put it to good use and give them a beautiful piece to put in their home or sell it. You probably sell that thing for a thousand bucks. I'll give you $50 for it <laughs> just so I can gift it to Mallory. <laughs> <laughs> here's, what, here's what I'll say about the thing is, as soon as I start saying, maybe I should hold on to this, that's just another way of saying just in case. Yeah, it is. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe I should hold on to this because of blank. And there's not, usually not even a because of. It's just like, ah, maybe I should hold on to this. And the implied statement is what? Just in case. But as mm-hmm. Ryan said, you outgrow those baby shoes, they start to deform your feet. You outgrow the shirt, it no longer looks good on you. I mean, Ryan's shirt, right now, he's clearly outgrown this shirt. And <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Josh. But it's a lot of sentimental value. All those muscles. I mean... <laughs> Every day he's doing so many uh, hey, I'm bench work- presses. Hey, I'm working. I'm working. I got to order some more shirts, man. I'm sorry they're so tiny. I'm sorry my tiny shirts offend you. No, it's your pecs offend me. They're, <laughs> they're dangerous. Have you registered those? <laughs> Do you have a concealed carry permit? Don't give me your comp salts. <laughs> I-, I got a minimalism formula here. Break the tie for us, TK. Okay. Minimal- minimalism formula. Functionality minus sentimentality equals practicality. Functionality plus sentimentality equals vitality. You not only have the practicality, but you also have this life-giving quality that's added on to it due to the sentimentality. I actually heard Kathy's question a little bit differently. I didn't hear a story that was purely about sentimentality. I heard her say, it has good use as a writing desk. I heard her say that it has her aesthetic that she really likes. And the sentimentality is the add-on plus all of these things that it represents. And so for me, I vote in the direction of vitality and I say amass it. I really like it. And all I right, really Kathy, like it for keep, you. keep your damn desk. <laughs> <laughs> Why does TK outshine us all the time? TK, get out of here. It's the bald head. The light's directly on it and it just shines. The bald head literally shines. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Our next segment That's is great, man. That was good. <laughs> Our next segment is called Impulse Purchases. Maybe you saw something in the checkout line or maybe you saw something that you really wanted to get at the store that you didn't know you wanted five minutes ago. But now that it's in front of you, you couldn't possibly live without it. You can send us your impulse purchases or things that you saw as an impulse purchase at the store. Just snap a picture with your phone. Send it over to podcast at theminimalists.com. What do we have here, Malabama? It it is a picture of a 20-piece family carving set because Halloween is right around the corner. Oh, my goodness. And at least for me as a kid, I feel like we bought one every single year because we would lose it and we'd only use it around Halloween. Or we'd throw it away because they were typically plastic. Um, But I'm pretty darn sure you could probably achieve this with knives you already have at home or other sharp objects. Possibly. Here's here's the problem Hmm. I have with this is... We we get immense value from this every year when Ella is carving out the pumpkins with us and uh, she's always doing LeBron James in the pumpkin. It's perfect. You'd love it, TK. Um, no, is it LeBron a, James like blocking Michael Jordan? Yes, yes, yes. 
Stop it. <laughs> he's got his hand in Jordan's face and he's like, <laughs> no, she'll have immense fun with it. But here's the lesson I take away from the impulse purchase. This is when we oversell something as though I need a 20 piece carving kit. Mm. Like I get there could be three pieces that are really useful, maybe four, but 20 pieces means what? It means excess. It means too much. It means that it might actually get in the way of the thing I'm trying to create. Mm-hmm. With the pumpkin. And as you said, it's also producing much more waste as well. I am yeah. so adverse to this type of, like, I, I'm, I, it, there's like a spitefulness with me that I, I, I probably need to seek a therapist for. But like, when I see this, I'm like, I'm not doing Halloween. Like, no, I'm not going to go out. I'll tell you who does Halloween masterfully is Jordan No More. That, that dude, like, he doesn't, I don't think he buys anything as far as his outfits. He never goes out and he's like, oh, I'm going to dress up as so-and-so. Like, he just looks at his closet and he's like, oh, with what I have, I can go out and dress up like this. And I've been out with him before and people, like, stop him to compliment him on on his outfit. Um, but yeah, man, like, when I see something like this, I'm like, no, like, I don't even want to, I don't even want to carve pumpkins now looking at that. Like, I'm not going to be duped <laughs> and spend an extra money. It was like, I went to Burning, I, I, when I went to Burning Man, people were like, I know, here's my Burning Man story for the podcast. <laughs> People were like, people were because I wore this. Uh-huh. It's all I wore. Yeah. And people are like, what are you doing? I'm like, what do you mean? What am I doing? They're like, you're so out of place. I'm like, this is Burning Man, bro. Yeah. Like, we're all get, out of place. Yeah, we're all out of place. <laughs> I'm like, I get to make. I was like, this is my art. Like, what are you talking about? Like, oh, you should have bought clothes. You should have got a feather boa. You should have got. You look like a tourist. I'm like, I can look however I want here. Like, you think I'm gonna go out and spend seven hundred dollars on some outfits just so you don't have this conversation with me? In fact, I love that we're having this conversation right now. Like, mm. this whole thing is about breaking the rules, and mm. it's so funny for a, a, a place that has no rules. It had quite a few rules. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about this impulse purchase because as a kid, I always enjoyed dressing up, going out, doing the the carving of pumpkins. But it was much more about the experience than it was about the accoutrements. Or if it was about accoutrements, it was about candy. It was not about having 20 different carving knives to slice up a pumpkin. Well, for me and Josh, it was always about the candy when we were kids. Oh, yeah. Regardless of the time of year. We were so fat. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, I'm I'm just curious. I don't want to get off the topic, but both of you guys grew up pretty religiously. Did that not play any role? Was like your religious upbringing cool with celebrating Halloween? No, no. My religious upbringing, (laughs) yeah, I was absolutely not allowed to celebrate holidays. Josh was because he was a pagan. But me, (laughs) I was on my my non-pagan pedestal. Uh, So, I mean, that certainly has something to do with the upbringing. But now, like, I do find joy in different celebrations, different holidays, birthdays. Um, uh, if, if anything, I do it for other people. Like my wife loves celebrating her birthday. So like I go out of my way to do whatever I can for Mariah, like on her birthday when she yeah. asks to do some things, but, um, take the religious out of it though. Like it yep. is frustrating to me to like, feel like with these holidays, I got to dress a certain way, have a certain set of carving knives, have a certain set of lights up, have a certain tree. I got to do these or I'm out of yeah. place. It's like, mm. I mean, this podcast is built on being out of place, I think. Yeah, and, and finding comfort in that. <laughs> right, right. In fact, even finding identity in it by shedding the need to always be in place, mm-hmm. to fulfill the role that appeases other people. Yeah, I mean, I grew up Catholic first 14 years of my life. My mom was totally cool with Halloween, though. I remember one year she dressed as a slutty nun. <laughs> she must great. have been 40. I was four. <laughs> and she was wearing a, this pink habit. 
And she, she was a nun before I was born, obviously. And uh, well, I, not with her, it's probably not that obvious. <laughs> PK uh, said recently he wants to do a whole episode about my mom at some point, and uh, we could just read some sections from Love People Use Things. Yeah. When you first told me your mom was a nun, mm-hmm. that she got pregnant by a priest, mm-hmm. I was like, wait, are you Jesus? <laughs> <laughs> <Are you> Jesus. <laughs> He was like, oh, no, it's Wait, not wouldn't me. that kind of make him the devil, though? I don't know which one. We, we, we got to figure that it's, out. Was Jesus, was Jesus a priest? Anyway, yeah. let, let, us, let us know in the comments. <laughs> Bring us home here, TK. Well, you know, I, I like how you talked about the being different and, and, and not being afraid to stand out. That also applies to doing things that everyone else does. If, if your only reason for not doing something is the fact that everyone else is doing it, then you're still doing what everyone else is doing. You're still following the crowd just in a different way. So if you look at the crowd and say, I really want to do what the crowd is doing, but I'm not going to do it because it's the crowd and my Mm. principal stance is to never follow the crowd, you're still following the crowd because Mm -hmm. your life is nothing more than a reaction to what you think everyone else will think of you. And so it works both ways. Sure. Anyway, to bring this home, I would say the sentimentality ranking for this one seems to be eh, meh. And the functionality ranking seems to be meh because it's easily replaceable. So I'm going to give this a low vitality score and say, trash it. Yeah. <laughs> we can well, skip that impulse. Yeah, I don't think... Uh, yeah. All right, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm getting, we're getting the dinger in our ears, so I'm going to stop talking. <laughs> advertisements suck is our next segment. Here is an advertisement. This is directly across the street from the studio here. Now, I remember when... The person who bought this building, I, it's literally directly across the street. He bought the building. He was cleaning it up, which also meant like dealing with the city because there was a homeless encampment directly across the street. And he was like paying people to move away from the building and eventually had to forcibly have some people removed from his building the, right across the street here. And then one day I'm pulling up to the studio and I say, oh, there's some beautiful artwork This that's being painted on the side of the building. There's going to be this whole mural. I don't know what they're making, but it's going to be... And the next day, I see it's finished, and it's a giant ad for a purse. That's some LA shit right <laughs> there, man. And you can see it here on the screen totally if you're watching LA. the video version of the podcast. Yeah. And mm. so it is a giant mural advertisement. And this, ladies and gentlemen, is one of the reasons advertisements suck. Because, well, let's talk about the good thing from this. They, they hired some artists to paint some things, so they're funding the arts... Right. Uh, And yet it is uh, encouraging consumption in a way that is, um, I think, getting in the way of of art. It's better than the homeless encampment just for the sanitary aspect of it. But man, I am deciding. I'm like, would I rather the homeless encampment be there or that advertisement be there? Well, there's more humanity in the homeless encampment for sure. Mm -hmm. Uh, the, The problem is I mean this there's this great Instagram account called uh, Humans of Capitalism I think it's called or Capitalist Human Humans of Capitalism I think it is and anyway you see things like this all the time where it, the juxtaposition of like you could have a homeless encampment there and then this ad for a giant really expensive purse TK what say mm. you mm. TK bought that purse I saw him walking around with it <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking about buying it <laughs> <The> merch <laughs> wait um. You said you could have, you said you could have what, what there instead of that? The advertisement, um, I ju- you just said it. You could have a be- beautiful mural there, uh, which is what I originally you, thought You could have gonna... art there rather than an ad, is what he was saying. Mm. Yeah. I'm, I don't know. It, it, it depends. Like, who, who would pay for the art? 
You should, that, you should, that presupposes that art must be paid for. And I'll tell, exa- tell you exactly. I'll tell you exactly who would have paid for this. Uh, the the gentleman who owns this building, and this is not a knock on this gentleman, um, but he very well could have just opened up that space to an artist and been like, "Do whatever you want, just make it beautiful." And it would have been no. It, an artist would have done it for free, but instead he was like, "Oh, there's an opportunity now that I got this homeless encampment away. There's an opportunity for me to make however much money each month." Did he get rid of the homeless encampment? Yes. Yes. For, for the purpose of just, putting- I, I, I don't, I, I didn't think that until right now. But, yeah. but, but oh, even, if, but yeah. you know what? Take away his intentions. Let's not, let's yeah, not, yeah, let's yeah, not yeah, try yeah. to, you know, put intentions on him. Regardless, like he did what he did with that. Yeah. Here's what I'll say. Ryan and I own a good chunk of a coffee shop down in Saint Petersburg, Florida, and we could have done the same thing. We have, we have a nice wall with some beautiful artwork on it. You know what it says? Welcome to Saint Petersburg. Now, here's the benefit of that. And if this businessman were to think a few steps ahead, if you go to St. Petersburg, the number one place that people go to take photos is at our coffee shop yeah. at Bandit. Yeah. Bandit Coffee. And the reason they do that is yeah. because there's a beautiful mural there. And it doesn't even say Bandit Coffee on anything. It just says, welcome to St. Petersburg. Beautiful artwork. And people sit there on the bench. And you can look on Instagram, thousands and thousands of photos of people in front of that. And what does that do? It calls attention to the business indirectly. Yeah. The knock-on effects of that art are some sort of capitalist exchange. But even without that, you have a beautiful piece of art. And yeah. when you realize you can create something and get the best of both worlds. Ryan and I started this podcast back in 2015. We never even thought about monetizing it. And we don't monetize in a traditional sense. We don't do advertisements, right? And I'd be willing to do the podcast for nothing. We'd have to radically change the way that we do it because the reason we have... You'd all be fired. (laughs) Well, Yeah, that that was a nice way of saying what I was getting ready to say. Well, yeah. And so we appreciate the patrons because they pay for Jordan and Jess Mm. and Emma and Sean and Sean and Danny and Malabama and Jeff and Dave, et cetera, et cetera, and TK Mm. and me and and Ryan. It allows us to to make a podcast in the studio space and the equipment, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But... We started off by creating art, and that led to the commerce. Quite often, when the commerce leads to the art, you end up with some nonsense like this. You know what, dude? The the best example of what you're talking about in LA, in my opinion, even though I wouldn't, I'd never step foot in this store. It's that pink, the pink wall. I was yeah, thinking about that. Yeah. So the yeah. Paul Smith, and it's funny because like even on that pink wall, there's it doesn't say Paul Smith anywhere on there, does it? It does, but it's it's really small, super subtle. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it's like, but what he did is he was like, or, or what they did. I don't know who owns that place. Um, Mr. Smith, Mr. Smith. What Mr. <laughs> Smith did is he made art, and he was like, "Oh, this is going to be awesome. People are going to take pictures in front of it, and that's what's going to bring people here." Or maybe he didn't even know they were going to take pictures. Maybe in front not. Of it. Maybe not. Just like we didn't know, like with the the St. Pete thing. That's true. We yeah. didn't. We just like, hey, this would be beautiful to see because you are entering the city here, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So I just want to say, beyond you decided to start with creating art, is you decided to create value through art. That is really what the spirit and heart of commerce is about. Amen. It's about creating value, not just looking for the easiest and quickest, quickest way to get a buck. And I think part of why advertising culture is killing creativity is not because of something intrinsically bad about taking a paycheck to put somebody's product on your wall, but it's because people aren't thinking about the process of creating value in a way that's long-term, in a way that has lasting effects. It's always like, ah, just give me the ad because it solves money problems and I can pay my bills. But there's so much potential there that's not being tapped. Amen, man. Yeah. In oh. summary, advertisements suck. That's right. <laughs> Let's move over to obsolete objects, a little segment we do where we talk about an item that your life will be fine without or maybe your life would even be 
slightly better without this object. Now, Alabama, you submitted this one today. Other people can submit theirs, podcast at theminimalists.com. And you said incandescent light bulbs are now obsolete for you. Wait, what's an incandescent light bulb? It's old school light bulbs. Oh, versus LED light bulbs. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I've been slowly switching to LEDs over the past uh, probably 10 years because the big thing that was presented to me is that they're very energy efficient. Um, They have a much longer lifespan. For me, I was moving around a lot. I got to the point where I was just taking my light bulbs with me every rental, every time I would move. And I very rarely had to replace any of those. Mm -hmm. So for me, I think they make more sense because they have been a natural progression of the actual technology. Not to mention, they do their job much better. They light in... um, you know, better ways. They're much more adjustable if light is very important to you as far as the temperature and dimming levels and such. I like the aesthetics of incandescent light bulbs, but I don't like having to pay to replace them every six months or a year or however long they end up lasting me. Yeah. Podcast, Sean, uh, there's a very fascinating video on uh, the progression of light bulbs and planned obsolescence. Uh, you can just look on YouTube for it. Um, but put that in the show notes. It's a, it's an, it's an amazing 15 minute documentary on Ooh. how light bulbs used to last. These kinds of light bulbs used to last like 20, 30 years. Mm-hmm. And then the light bulb mafia got together and they're mm-hmm. like, if you keep producing these light bulbs, uh, we're all going to go out of business. So then they agreed on a certain lifespan. And then now it's starting to come back to the LEDs where they're starting to last longer. But it's, it is very, very fascinating. Um, but So why do you... You probably don't like the LED stuff because of all the blue light, I'm assuming. No, that, that's actually not it. And so here's where my position is. Uh, LEDs give me a headache. Oh, and there's yeah. a lot of research behind this now. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a study from the Cleveland Clinic, which I sent over to Mao beforehand. And we can put that in the show notes as well. But what we're seeing is LEDs potentially cause damage to your eyes, especially the not if you don't get the non-flicker ones. It's essentially a strobe. And a lot of people who are oh. sensitive to certain things, especially people with chemical sensitivities or light sensitivities. Like, remember, I used to get headaches all the time in the corporate world oh, from yeah. fluorescent lights. Right. I get similar headaches. Like, we're in here right now with all of these lights around. Here. So any artificial light generally gives me a headache. So here's my stance. I prefer incandescent lights but I almost never use them. And this is the, here, here's where, what I do, regardless of whether or not it's LED, incandescent, et cetera, fluorescent, I just turn them off. And I use them only when I absolutely have to use them. And that means I'm going to bed earlier because we're not leaving lights turned on. So yes, Ryan, you're right. The, the, the secondary effect is the blue light is a problem. But instead of putting on blue blocking glasses that prevent, you know, that help me with sleep, what I'm doing is simply saying, turn the lights off, regardless of whether it's LED. Now, the research is a bit mixed on this. But what I will say is, for me, LEDs give me a significant headache compared to incandescent. If you can see that. stand LEDs, I don't know what the long-term effects are. And I don't think it's not an experiment that I really want to go through. Sure. But there are potential links to macular degeneration with LED light bulbs because of that strobe effect that is not natural to your eye. That is so weird that, yeah, I didn't know that LED strobed until I was like taking a video somewhere and the video synced up or rather didn't sync up with the the strobing. Uh And I'm like, what is going, like, why is it strobing? And I think it might've been you where I'm like, why is it strobing? And you're like, that's the LEDs. I had no idea that they were like this constant pulse. 
So you can get LEDs that don't pulse? They, they don't pulse as much, but okay. essentially that's the way LED works. Oh, okay. Hey, hey Josh, question for you. You talk about how, hey, just like, regardless of the bulb, just turn it off. What do you do, let's say, two in the afternoon, you want to read a book in your home, um, and maybe it's just too hot to just go sit outside. What do you do? I, I read near a window. And mm-hmm. and so the home that I'm in has windows. And mm-hmm. so if you have access to a window, then I just read near the window. And that helps me avoid turning on any light, whether it's incandescent, LED, et cetera. And so the most energy saving is simply not using the energy in the first place. I think that's the most minimalist approach. Mm -hmm. Now, it's not to say I'm against technology or light bulbs. I have light bulbs throughout the house. Some of them are LEDs because the the outlets don't allow for an incandescent. But wherever I can put an incandescent, I will put an incandescent because I don't get the headaches when I turn on incandescents. I've got one more obsolete object. Reset that clock, Professor Sean. So I made a list here of five things I do not need as a minimalist. I'm saying I don't need these things. Earlier, TK, you were talking about toasters. Yeah. I don't use a toaster. I haven't used a toaster in so many years. Although my wife owns one. I couldn't even tell you. I mean, we hide it away. We don't put it on the counter. But if she makes sourdough bread, so she does use it. My wife's a minimalist. I'm a minimalist. We own different things. I don't ever need a toaster. I don't ever want a toaster. They're so crummy. Oh, don't tweet that podcast, Sean. (laughs) And right next to where my toaster isn't is where my microwave isn't. Mm -hmm. That's the next object that I don't own as a minimalist. I've realized that when I would live places and it came with a microwave, I would use it maybe once a year. I remember once I moved into a home in Missoula, and I didn't realize for over a year that we had a microwave, a yeah. microwave yeah, in I the home. That. We're like, wait, we have a microwave? <laughs> <laughs> Colin was using it one day. Like, right. wait a minute. Where did you get that? And, and it's so funny. Like, As soon as you develop that pattern, then you might start using the thing. But the pattern I developed was, I don't need to use this thing. I can do things more slowly. And so I get by without a microwave. Here's another thing. This reminds me of the, a fight club. Remember the, the scene where the narrator is talking to Tyler Durden on the airplane mm-hmm. and, and Tyler Durden says, what's a duvet cover? Mm-hmm. He's like, why do you know what a duvet cover is? Mm-hmm. Right? He's like, it's just a blanket. And yet we have duvet covers, Right. I haven't owned a duvet cover in years. The reason I don't is because I hate the way that they are shaped on the bed. Mm. And so I simply don't have a duvet cover. I don't even know what that is. It's a blanket cover. It's a pillowcase for your blanket, essentially, Mm -hmm. or for Mm. your comforter. Oh, okay. (laughs) Right, exactly. Okay. That's my response as well. Yeah. Duvet criticize you for this? Oh, my stars. (laughs) I'm done. I will say it's much easier. (laughs) I don't own a duvet cover, but it's much easier to clean it rather than taking the whole bulky blanket and shoving it in there. Yeah, we, I mean, I wash my comforter when I need to wash it. And Mm -hmm. uh, that's worked out really fine for me. Yeah. You know what's, okay, so I actually do use a duvet cover. So we had a, we had a, um, a fluffy cover, whatever, a fluffy duvet, I guess. <laughs> and, uh, and then Mariah put something on it, like, so that way it, we, we didn't get the actual cover dirty. The comforter. The mm-hmm. comforter. Thank you. And long story short, uh, the comforter was way too hot for me. So I took the comforter out and now I use only the duvet cover. Wow. 
Amazing. <laughs> Mainly because I didn't want to buy another blanket. I'm like, ah, this this thing will actually probably work. And it does. And that's that's what I use now. <laughs> Just oh, yeah. when I was I was getting ready to take away your minimalist certificate. <laughs> now I have to give it back to him. I've renewed your license, Ryan. Thanks God. You are now a Thank- light. Thanks God. Thanks God. <laughs> Thanks by, God. By the, by the way, you brought up Brad Pitt for, or Fight Club. Um, you're you're on your way to becoming Brad Pitt's character in The Big Short. Like you're already seventy five percent there. Well, yeah. <laughs> Explain why. Well, I, I mean, he, he's he's out in the boondocks, mm-hmm. right? Like just deliberately, just away. Mm-hmm. Uh, no Wi Fi, mm-hmm. right? No TV. No TV. Mm-hmm. When when the guys who are like really ambitious and talented and financially literate come to him for tips on how to make money. He's kind of like, you know what? I'm going to help you guys, but I, I, I promise you, it's not going to make you as happy as you think. <laughs> you know? So he, his like, heart is too generous, so he has to help, but he's kind of like annoyed that mm-hmm. these guys think it, have more, having more money is going to help them. You're totally becoming You know what I guy. respect about Josh is once Josh latches onto something, he will like take it as far as he can, and I really admire that about Josh. And uh, I'm looking forward to seeing what you give up next. Well, the, the next two things... <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking about chewing. Chewing seems so... <laughs> I'm just going to do some steak smoothies from now on. <laughs> no, I'm just going to slurp. No chewing. Oh, I'm going to have so... Bex chew for me like a little baby bird. <laughs> <laughs> All right, two other things. I uh, I don't have a TV at home and I don't have a Wi-Fi router because I don't have internet at home. Now, those are things that might change because I know Bex is like, oh, I'm getting tired of not having internet at home. And so the solution that I talked about in... Uh, love people use things is if you want, I had someone ask this question the other day, Hey, I want to go without internet at home, but my partner really wants it. What do you do? Well, you can ask them to hide the Wi-Fi router password mm-hmm. and therefore they have the password. You don't, you functionally don't have internet. The other person in the house does crisis averted. Uh, same thing with TV. Like I'm not against TV. I don't think it's wrong or evil. I simply don't have a TV. I haven't had one for a long time. I haven't owned one in a very, very long time. The last apartment I lived in had one. Last thing for me, a wristwatch. I love watches. I just hate them on my wrist. This is the <laughs> one day I, I them, wear a watch. But I re- like every time Jordan posts something about a watch, I'm like, that's a really beautiful, like mechanical, like really awesome piece of machinery. I hate things touching my wrist, though. Anyway, I, I love wristwatches. Oh, except for your hand, John. <laughs> Jordan and I. <laughs> Jordan and I are big wristwatch fans. Yeah, yeah and I, here's the thing: I appreciate Jordan's obsession with yes. wristwatches because what yeah. you were talking about that's earlier. that's a nice watch too, man. Thank you, brother. Yeah. I appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, it really Thank is. You, I mean that brother. from the bottom of my heart. And when I dive deep into something, I tend to get obsessed about something. That's what I really appreciate about Jordan. I'm not obsessed about watches in a way. So it used to be that I would buy expensive watches. Why? Because to, look yeah, who I am. That's right. Look at my tag. Who are, yeah. Am I saying that right? I think so. Tag Howard. <laughs> <laughs> so this is my one. Um, I had two because Jordan gave me a gift Welcoming, welcoming me here. Really beautiful watch. But I was showing it to my dad and telling him the story about it. And he really loved it. And I was like, you want it, Pop? <laughs> he was like, yeah. So I gave it to ah, my pop. That's great. So I'm back down to one. That's nice, man. Yeah. Here's yeah. a bonus one for you. Sunglasses. I no longer wear sunglasses. He loves glycoma. Am I <laughs> saying that right? Glycoma? <laughs> no. No, it's glaucoma. I'm kidding. You can watch the video that we did about it on YouTube. How sunglasses are now obsolete. You can check that out. I've on never YouTube. been into them, but you were obviously into them. Why'd you get rid of it? Because I realized that it messed up my circadian rhythm, gotcha. which was harming my sleep personally. Gotcha. Individual results may vary. Let's move on to 
Photo Friday Home Tour. This is number nine in our series. This one is called Triple Potty Inception. Wow. So we have a garage that is converted into a guest house. This is where I live half the time. And this is a photo. You can see it above one of my shoulders here. Jordan will put it on the screen for you if you're watching the video version of the podcast. This is my bathroom in my guest house. And you'll see here through the the mirror that's sort of reflected there. You have you have a you have a toilet, you have a squatty potty. This is the one item that I own that I wish I didn't have to own. Hmm. But it they have portable versions of it too. It what it does is it takes up too much space for me, so I have to keep it in my shower, as you can see here. <laughs> Because I don't like it being at the base of the toilet because uh-huh. I'm OCD and I clean the toilet every day. And so the squatty potty helps, well, squat while you're on the toilet. Mm. And it really is something that adds immense value to my life, even if it happens to get in the way. So it's borderline clutter for me. I wish there was a better place for me to put it. I just don't have any space for it. But then outside the window, here's another potty. There is, <laughs> we're redoing our landscaping right now. And uh, the people who were uh, working on some of the, they brought their own porta potty. So right outside of my bathroom, they could have just used my bathroom. All they do is ask. Dude, this is, this is. I mean, I guess you're not in L.A. County anymore, but it doesn't surprise me that they're just like, we're not even going to ask. We're just going to bring our own potty. Yeah. We're not going to inconvenience the customer. Yeah, I think you're the only person in the neighborhood right, that's that would be, yeah. thinking like yeah, that. Right. <laughs> yeah, you're the only one that has a has has a heart over there, Josh. Anyway. Don't you dare accuse me of having a heart. <laughs> <laughs> I thought he was going to defend this. <laughs> Here's the other thing I did, though. You, you'll notice, um, so I have, this is an actual picture. I didn't like clean anything up beforehand. I, I try to keep it as as natural as it actually is. I have my tissue cover there on the sink. I think uh, not pictured here, but just to the right is like my toothbrush holder and a soap dispenser. That's all I have on top of the counter. But then you'll see through the reflection in the mirror here, I have what looks like two towels. You know, towel bars. I hate towel bars. Yeah, me too. First thing I did was remove the towel bar. Yeah. Immediately removed the towel bar. I'm a fan of the hooks too. Yeah, I just put two hooks up there. So now I have a hook with a towel and I have a hook with my bath mat. I put the bath mat on there when I'm done. When I need to take a shower, I put the bath mat out. I put it back up there. I much prefer the hooks. I don't know how people use towel bars without getting their towels all wet and musty and moldy. Let me know in the comments if you if I've been doing towel bars wrong this whole time, but I just don't enjoy them. I don't enjoy them because I constantly hit my elbows on them. Really? If there is a towel bar, I will find it with my elbow. <laughs> <laughs> so this is my bathroom. I try to keep it really simple, obviously. Uh, there's a few uh, hair products there in the, in the uh, shower. I have a shampoo, conditioner, and a... Uh, what is that? It's all like uh, Dr. Bronner's soap that I use as I just body love, soap. I just love how there's no shades or curtains. I love how you give, like to give the landscaping folks a show. It's <laughs> <laughs> really nice of you. <laughs> I'm usually to stare out the window aggressively rubbing my nipples. <laughs> is, this, is this a wet room or does the shower door completely close, close off? It's wet when I'm in there. Hey-o. Oh my stars. <laughs> no, what, no this, is, this is European Wah. style. So it's funny. Um, th- no, this is a European style. Like, us Americans are the only dorks who use shower curtains all the time. Really? Yes. And like over in Europe, like they do this half glass thing, especially in a situation like that, because you don't need to cover the entire, you just need to cover a little bit of it. Mm -hmm. Oh, wait, maybe not pictured here. One of my favorite items that I've ever owned. You own one of these now, Ryan. My squeegee. 
And so I squeegee the glass every single day after showering and the walls. It's so satisfying. Yes. I'm not even OCD like that, man. But like you got me into squeegeeing. And every time I squeegee, it's just like the most satisfying, like, like I'm mowing the grass or something. I got a really nice German made squeegee. Oh, you're going to have to send me the link. I will. Yeah. I'll put it in the show (laughs) notes for you. Thanks, man. Um, But that. That squeegee, I use it every day because it avoids soap scum. You, if you go to clean the bathroom once a week or once a month or whatever, then all of a sudden you're like scrubbing. I never have to scrub ever because I spend 10 seconds. It also allows me to get a few squats in because I'll just squat all the way down as I'm squeegeeing. <laughs> so I'm working out while I'm drying off the and rest of my shower. if you while you're doing it, you could also practice singing. I mean, there's many things you can do while squeegeeing. Breath work. Yes, breath. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) So that is my bathroom. And uh, below the cabinet there, just a few few things in there. I keep a, uh, what do I keep in there? Oh, a hairdryer, of course. Plunger. Uh, There's a plunger beside the toilet. Uh, It's an aesthetically pleasing plunger, though. Of course it is. It has a clear handle and a black head. German made? (laughs) (laughs) I think Chinese made. Oh, okay. By the Germans. <laughs> That's all I got for the Photo Friday Home Tour. Oh, if you're a, man. If you subscribe to the video version of the podcast, we send those out. So I sent this photo out last Friday. I'll get Ryan and TK to send me some photos in the near future as well. And so what you're going to be seeing in the not-too-distant future from me and from uh, TK and Ryan, but especially from me, is I've noticed with, with, these, uh, with these photo tours, quite often I'm showing the errors in the living space. Like, oh, there's a porta potty outside or look at the overgrown weeds in my yard or look at these boxes we have to return, et cetera, et cetera. But we're getting to a point where I am going to start sharing some more aspirational photos. Here's what our living room actually looks like when it is at its new stage of completion. I say new stage because as soon as something is complete, I like uncompleting it and then Mm. starting all over again. Mm. Let's check in with the Patreon live stream, Alabama. Who has a question for us? First question comes from Christopher. He says, my wife seems to keep waking up after every sleep cycle to roll over. How can she stay asleep all night without waking up until morning? Mm, That is probably not going to happen. So when you look at sleep (laughs) cycles, and I, I track my sleep cycles using an aura ring. As I said earlier, you can use any of these other tracking devices, Apple Watch, uh, uh, Whoop. Fitbit, et cetera, that track sleep cycles. And what you realize, and I'm sure you see this as well, Ryan, you will wake up in the middle of the night and not even realize that you've awakened. Yeah. And But your ring tracks it. So you're up for a minute or two minutes, and that often disturbs the person in the bed next to you. Mm-hmm. You can go back to that list of 17 things that I gave, though, and have her implement some of those things, and it may make her wake up less frequently. That's what happened with Beck. She was waking up a dozen or two dozen times a night. And now she wakes up a few times a night. So reducing the frequency, not shooting to be perfect, but understanding that improving your sleep also means that you'll be waking up less frequently throughout the night. Mm-hmm. Next question. We have a question from Lindsay. How do I get my three-year-old to sleep in his own bed? He falls asleep in his bed, then comes in around midnight, just as my hubby and I are in deep sleep. Sleep after that just isn't as good. Hmm. You do what my uh, mom did and put whiskey in the bottle. My mom never did that. I'm kidding. <laughs> that you know of. That I know of. Yeah. <laughs> Man, yeah. yeah if the kids in sleep. That's, yeah, that's got to be. Well, I guess, you know, the cliche of a very tired looking parent is a cliche for a reason. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. At three, though, they, they should be able to sleep in their own bed. Mm. And um, 
what what's going on here is fear in, in the child. And the reason they might be waking up, because a three-year-old probably shouldn't be waking up around midnight regularly. Mm. So there's some sort of fear there. But they may also, and this is just potential, I would, I would ask myself, are they getting enough physical activity throughout the day that is keeping them yeah. asleep at night? I The one thing about Ella, she is a tornado. Originally, we were <laughs> going to call her Twitter account, which is at Ella Sandwich. Uh, last night, uh, one of my favorite tweets of all time from her, she said, we were walking and it all of a sudden started raining heavily. And uh, Bex goes, oh no, I feel like I'm in a wet t-shirt contest because it was pouring. Mm-hmm. And, and Ella goes, if I was in a wet dress contest, I'd come in third place. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it reminds me, do you know the Monopoly card that you pick? And it was like, you won third place in a beauty contest. Collect $10. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> it, it felt like that. And oh, that's funny. So we, she doesn't actually have a Twitter account. We tweet on her behalf. But originally, we were going to call it Hurricane Ella. Because throughout the day, especially when she was three years old, it was like a hurricane. But as a result, she slept every night for 12 hours. She still sleeps for 12 hours most nights mm. and sleeps soundly throughout the night, rarely gets up in the middle of the night to bother us. And so it's a saving grace that during the day, she's very active, but at night she is out mm. like a light. I, w- I would also, I would just look at the habits that you're helping your, your children form and me not having kids, so easy for me to give advice. Uh, but if your kid is used to waking up at midnight and then coming to sleep in your bed, then that is, they are now at that point forming a habit. So the question is, is like, how can you help them break that habit? I don't know the answer to that, but, um, but yeah, it's a symptom of something I would say. All right, y'all, before we get to our added value segment this week, big thanks to Jack Delaccio from Essentia. We'll put a link to Essentia in the show notes. You can check out their non-toxic mattresses and see if that is something that appeals to you. We also dive deep into a whole bunch of sleep tips from him on the private podcast. Real quick, for right here, right now, here is one thing going on in the life of the minimalist. We've completed two Sunday symposiums so far, and we're getting ready to go into our third Sunday symposium. It's in Los Angeles. Only 200 people, really nice, intimate setting. We have musical guests. We have special surprises. Noon on a Sunday. You can find it at sundaysymposium.com. Ryan, tell me about your Sunday symposium experience so far. It was awesome, man. Really enjoying it. Looking forward to doing more. TK, how about you? Man, what I love the most is just the people coming together and seeing how much laughter there is in the room, how much connection there is in the room. And I'm just looking forward to continue to build on that. Me too. Uh, what I really like here is we're building this community. There are free tickets available. There's pay-for tickets as well if you want to help support us in paying the staff and the venue. Obviously, it's not free to throw an event like this. We wanted to make it accessible to everyone, but only to 200 people. To keep it intimate, keep it small, keep it meaningful. And we're trying to find different ways to interact with the audience when we're there. You can find all the details over at sundaysymposium.com. For our added value this week, Bex and I have been downloading this show called Severance. Have you heard of it, Ryan? Have you seen it? I have not, but I've heard awesome things. This is on uh, Apple, right? Yes. Okay, yeah, yeah. You're like the 10th person to tell me that. It's it's on Mariah and I's list. I put it off forever. We don't watch a whole lot of shows now that we don't have a TV or internet at home, so I have to go to a coffee shop and like download an episode at a <laughs> to time. To your computer? Yes. And as I'm doing that, you have to be really selective, right? But then we watched the first episode of this, and it was like, oh, the minimalist set design. Absolutely stunning. It... it 
explores this stew of seemingly separate philosophical quandaries. And I think that's why TK will really enjoy it. So like, what is consciousness? What does it mean to be human? Are there benefits to escapism? How can work be meaningful to one person and completely meaningless? That same work can be meaningless to the next person, right? And it's really a show about work-life balance. Your brain gets severed. And so your work self is now different from your at-home self. This sounds a lot like Westworld. Hmm. In many many ways, it's like a minimalist version of Westworld. Really? Yeah. And although it's completely different in its premise... And what I'll say is all of these philosophical quandaries that don't seem tied together at all, somehow they loop it all together. But it's really about the self. And if I'm a different version at work than I am at home, is it two separate selves? And which one is me? And so ultimately, it's about this concept of work-life balance. And, wow. you know, if you're a long-time listener of The Minimalist, we, we think there's no such thing as work-life balance. No one asks about, like, driving life balance or eating life balance. It's just, it's just one area in which we say work is this and then enjoying life is something else and it really comes out in the show in really strange ways what made you watch this it looked beautiful in the trailer like it was beautifully shot the lighting the atmospherics it seemed really harsh minimalistic but then the depths of the story is what made me keep watching yeah it's always good to get a good recommendation but there's something special about discovering something really cool like that that no one told you about That's our show for today, Simpletons. On behalf of Ryan Nicodemus, T.K. Coleman, Alabama, Podcast Sean, Jordan No More, Professor Sean, Social Jess, Danny Unknown, Post-Production Peter, Emma the Immigrant, and the rest of our team. I'm Joshua Fields Milburn. If you leave here today with just one message, let it be this. Love people and use things because the opposite never works. Thanks for listening, y'all. We'll see you next time. Peace. Every little thing you think that you need Every little thing you think that you need Every little thing that's just feeding your greed Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it